This is a story of who we were. How we got here. And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us as we take history off the page. Welcome back to another episode of History Off the Page. That was the song All For You by the band Franz Ferdinand. You may remember them from the early to mid-2000s. They were a fairly popular uh, British band that came out, a lot of sort of poppy hits. And that was from their 2004 album Take Me Out. The song is obviously about the famous Archduke Franz Ferdinand that the band is named after, whose murder on the 28th of June 1914 is often viewed as a seminal event in world history, something that essentially launched World War I and all the changes that resulted from it. Now, you're probably wondering, why would a post-punk revival band from the early 2000s in Scotland want to name themselves after a long-dead Austrian noble? It's kind of an odd idea, right? Well, there's a backstory to it, and the backstory is kind of interesting here. Basically, Around the time that the band formed, they're watching uh, television, they see a racehorse with the name Franz Ferdinand. And this kind of gets them curious about, okay, who was Franz Ferdinand? I've heard the name before. What What do we know about him? Why should he be interesting? And so they start doing their research, and the more and more they read, the more and more they come to recognize the importance of his assassination in setting in motion the events that lead to World War I. And so they really embrace this idea that from such a singular event, world history is changed. And in many ways, they kind of want their music to do the same thing. Now, they also just like the alliteration of the name. There's more to it than that. But basically, from this small event, watching a racehorse, world history has changed. Now, of course, I'm being a little bit playful here. It's not like Franz Ferdinand, the band, is on the same level as Elvis or the Rolling Stones, groups that really did change the history of music. But the idea that random events can cause dramatic change is one worth exploring, because it's directly related to Franz Ferdinand's assassination, the start of World War I, and all of the many, many things that followed. Which we'll see, there's a pretty momentous list, not the least of which is World War II, communism, and fascism. All three of those things directly derive from the experience of World War I. 
But basically, to make a long story short, the only reason the assassination plot on June 28th is successful is because Franz Ferdinand's driver takes a wrong turn. Now, basically, Franz Ferdinand was coming in the summer of 1914 to visit Sarajevo, which is the capital of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Bosnia-Herzegovina had recently been annexed by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's a very beautiful city. If you ever get a chance to go there, it's kind of Uh, in a little valley between some mountains. There's a little river that flows through it. Uh, In many ways, it's one of these places that one could describe as the kind of crossroads of Europe, a kind of east meets west. Uh, It has a lot of uh, Muslims that live there, but also some Catholics and many Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians, Uh, a lot of Jews as well back in the medieval period. It's a very cosmopolitan place. The food, by the way, is amazing. If you ever get a chance to go to, to Sarajevo, I highly recommend it. But it's also, in 1914, it's a very crowded place, and it's a place where the kind of idea of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, these older ideas of government based on dynasties, it's coming into conflict with a new Slavic, and in this case specifically Serbian, nationalism that is emanating, of course, from Serbia. So Franz Ferdinand decides to go visit, decides he's going to have a nice parade, it's going to be a, a swell time, he's going to get a chance to take his wife, Sofia, out. Sophia is not welcome, for the most part, in the Austrian court. She's kind of shunned, and and he loves her deeply. And so this is going to be a really great opportunity for him. So they get in the convoy, and they arrive in Sarajevo, and they're driving down the street, and suddenly someone throws a bomb at the car. And the bomb explodes, but it explodes behind the car. It injures some other people, not Franz Ferdinand, not his wife. They drive on to City Hall, And they decide, you know what, we need to cancel this visit. Now, Franz Ferdinand is well aware of the danger, but he says, I am a noble, I am a man of honor, I have to stop on my way out and visit the policemen that were wounded in the attack. And so the convoy sets off, and they're going to try to get out of the city as quickly as possible with a stop planned at the hospital. The governor, Oskar Potjorek, decides that they should take the most direct route out of the city via the Apelque that runs along the Miljaka River. But no one bothers to tell the driver of Franz Ferdinand's car that they're just going straight out of the city. He thinks they're going back kind of the way they came. And so as he's driving along the Apelque, they come to the Latin Bridge, and he fatefully makes a right-hand turn. Now, pretty soon after he makes the right-hand turn, he realizes, oh, okay, nobody else is going this way. I need to stop. I need to turn around. So he slams on the brakes, he backs up, and then his engine stalls. And as fate would have it, who is standing just a couple feet away but a young student, Bosnian-Serb student, named Gavrilo Princip. And Princip is armed with a pistol. He steps onto the footboard, fires several shots into the car, and in doing so, essentially launches the First World War. Now again, how did this come about? In many ways, it comes about by accident. What if they had had better communication? What if they had cell phones? What if they had GPS? What if the driver had not made that wrong turn? Would Franz Ferdinand have survived? Probably. Do we get World War I? If we don't get World War I, do we get World War II? Do we get... Hitler? Does Hitler just stay in Munich and Vienna and become a painter? Do we get revolution in Russia? Do we get communism? 
These are big historical questions. And there isn't necessarily a clear explanation. Regardless of whether or not this could have been avoided, the fact, of course, is that it happened. And it became one of the most important moments in world history. Because to put it bluntly, World War I breaks the positivist, rationalist, bourgeois, 19th century civilization that Europeans had been building dating back to the French Revolution. It renders hollow almost all long-held notions of politics and culture and pushes Europeans into a deeply pessimistic and cynical attitude towards all the institutions and values that they had spent more than a century developing. As a result, Europeans lost faith in traditional authorities, such as the monarchy, the various churches, the left, and the right-wing parties. Things like democracy, God, bourgeois notions of thrift, restraint, hard work, duty, honor. What did all these words mean in a world dominated by needless death and sacrifice? What use were they if all they led to was suffering and catastrophe? Think for a moment about the idea of dying for your country. Think about the idea of making the ultimate sacrifice. You know, I'm, I'm recording this here in the United States. It's 2022. There are many members of the military out there, their families. They have decided to risk their lives to defend the interests of the American people. In places like Europe, in places all around the world, right? This isn't just necessarily a theoretical question or a, hey, I'm going to sign up because I'll get good benefits and I don't have to worry about anything else, right? The idea of sacrifice is ingrained in each country's military. You know, I'm recording this, as I said, in the middle of a war in Russia and Ukraine. The soldiers serving in both of those countries, in many cases, have said, I am willing to sacrifice my life that my country might survive, that my people might have freedom. This is a very, very powerful and appealing idea. Right? Millions of people over the course of history have given their lives willingly for their countries. Why did they do it? Are they suckers? Are they stupid? Or are they motivated by a deep and passionate love for their country? We can't speak, of course, to everyone out there serving, fighting, doing things like that right now. But in World War I, the question becomes, was it worth the cost, right? Was it worth hundreds of thousands, millions of young men dead, maimed, psychologically damaged? What did those people die for? That's a real powerful question, too. What is it that they sacrificed for? In the victorious countries of the war, you have the cost in human life around 1 million Britons, 1.6 million Frenchmen. Generally speaking, about 2 to 4% of the total population in most other countries. Now, that's kind of misleading because we're not talking about 2 to 4% of most of the population. Oftentimes, that loss is going to be specifically felt among young men because young men are the ones that are serving as soldiers they're the ones being wiped out on the battlefield. Again, what did they die for? In the case of Britain, 
Did they die to defend Belgium's honor? Is that worth the cost of a million men? Or Serbia's independence? Is this something that people really care about in France? And so, again, one of the driving questions that that develops as World War I goes on and on in the battles and the attrition and the wounded, is it worth the cost? You know, in the beginning, it's easy to say, yes, it's worth the cost of, of a few men to die so that the country might live. But when it starts to become 2 to 4% of your population, there are cases one could make where, okay, Serbia is being attacked. Serbia has no choice. There will be no Serbia. But is the same true for Britain? Is the same true for Italy? Is the same true for Russia? What did they care about the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and about the Austro-Hungarian response to it? Now, I just gave you the death tolls for some of the uh, Entente countries, the victorious countries. But what about the defeated nations? Rather than recognizing the legitimacy of their respective defeats, turned to victimhood and post-war dreams of violent revisions. In countries like Germany, Russia, and Italy, now Italy technically is on the victorious side, but they don't get the territory they were promised, so they end up being pretty disappointed with the war. In these countries, young men like Adolf Hitler, Vladimir Lenin, and Benito Mussolini abandon traditional values and parties, building new, radical alternatives. So one of the big points that I want to make before we even get into the heart of the matter, the heart of the war, what happened, the battles, etc., is that it is impossible to understand the appeal of something like communism or fascism without first appreciating the psychological effect of World War I. World War II is, in many ways, it's like the big sequel movie. It's like Aliens. For those of you that have ever seen Alien and Aliens, Aliens is the big blockbuster. There's all the fighting, all the destruction. It's got the cool scenes, the weapons, etc. Alien, it's a story of uh, basically an alien that these uh, people on a spacecraft pick up and the alien goes and, and starts killing them. A lot less death than Alien. A lot less violence. But out of the two, World War I is the more important because it is the psychological destruction that it creates. So we're going to talk today about the Great War on today's episode. Now, obviously, this is a tremendously important and complicated topic. And there's really two parts to the story. One is on the battlefield. One is the military situation, right? There's a reason that this is referred to as being the First World War. This is, with some apologies to the Napoleonic Wars, it's the first global conflict fought on three continents, and it's fought for five long, grinding years. Its scope and scale are simply unprecedented for the beginning of the 20th century. It also involves the development or the first major usage of all kinds of new modern military technologies, including flamethrowers, airplanes, submarines, poison gas, tanks, and more. About 20 million people die during this war. 20 million more are wounded. Now, many of these are actually civilians who are killed through bombings, shellings, starvation is a huge issue. And in one case, we even have genocide taking place. So World War I is a pretty big deal. We need to talk about the war, how it was fought, what the major battles were. And that's basically what we're going to do in today's episode. 
right? So this is about World War I, but we're talking about the course of the war itself, not the way it is experienced. At the same time, though, as I mentioned before, the real consequences of the war isn't just material or physical, it is the psychological destruction of 19th century European society. It is the experience of the violence, the impact of constant sacrifice and disappointment that is the real legacy, one could argue, of the war. So in our next episode, we'll examine this aspect of the war, focusing especially on the personal decisions and experiences of soldiers, as well as people who lived on what we will call the home front. And that's actually what they called the home front during that period, right? The, the area behind the lines. For the first time during World War I, they started to say, this is actually part of the battlefield. It's just not a traditional part of the battlefield. If you want to know why Germans and Britons and Americans viewed civilians as legitimate targets in World War II, you have to realize that the boundary between combatant and non-combatant had collapsed during World War I. But we'll talk more about this on the next episode. Believe me, we have plenty to talk about during today's episode. Okay, we started this episode with a question about causation. What would have happened had Franz Ferdinand Stryver not made that wrong turn? Would World War I have ever taken place? Would a penniless painter from Austria have gone back home instead of joining the Bavarian army and later turning into the leader of the Nazi party who would unleash a second and even more devastating war on Europe? Would the young socialist Benito Mussolini have remained a newspaper editor, complaining about the exploitation of the working classes rather than founding fascism and transforming Italy into a dictatorship? Would the wobbly Romanov dynasty have weathered the storms of modernity, leaving violent radicals like Vladimir Lenin far away in harmless exile? On the other hand, one can argue that the general idea of a world war was pretty much inevitable, that the causes of the war were structural, that the events were inevitably being pushed along a certain path, dare I use the word destiny, by forces beyond the control of any one individual. In this view of things, had Princip failed, we still end up with a devastating European-wide war. And there's a number of factors that historians often put in this line of argumentation. You have the increased competition between countries for resources, markets, and especially in the last third of the 19th century, they're often fighting over colonies. We could also throw social Darwinism into this category. If life is a zero-sum game for control of resources, then exterminating your competition becomes a logical, if somewhat barbaric or inhuman, response. A traditional Marxist might point to the increasing pressures of the labor movement, which was beginning to exert increasing pressure for political reform, especially in monarchies like Russia, Germany, and the UK. Just as it does in our own time, Populism went hand-in-hand with nationalism, which created pressures on multi-ethnic empires such as Austria-Hungary, Germany, and Russia. One could also point to the arms races between the various European countries or the general desire for a war of revenge on the part of countries like France or Italy or Russia. There's a lot of reasons that we can get into, right? There's a lot of causes that we could list out. But when it comes to telling you the story of World War I, the number one cause often cited by historians is the alliance system 
that developed towards the end of the 19th century. Basically, the idea here is that once any two countries became involved in a conflict, the alliance system essentially turned any local crisis into a European-wide war. We'll go through the specifics in just a moment, but there's a really clever way that this situation has kind of been explained, kind of cartoonish way, uh, but one that I think makes a, a lot of sense. Basically, I'm talking about the idea here of World War I as a bar fight. If you go on Google, just, just type in World War I as a bar fight, and you'll see all kinds of stories, some of which were actually contemporary or, or just happened after the war, obviously, that tell the story of how the war happened in terms of, you know, your traditional bar fight. All the countries are kind of hanging out together in the pub, and Serbia bumps into Austria, spilling its beer. So what does Austria do? Austria is the kind of uh, the guy that's tired and, and has had enough and frustrated. And so Austria decides that it's going to take all of its aggression out on poor little Serbia, starts pushing the Serbs around. Except the Serbs have a big brother that are Russia. Russia steps in, says stop fighting. Germany and France begin to get involved. And then things get heated. And kind of like, again, one of those classical scenes, right? The, the guy throws the one punch and then the guy falls back into someone else. And before you know it, everybody in the bar is fighting and you have basically bedlam. Now, in the telling of this, some of these are more clever than others. Uh, I like the way when this story is told, they say, well, you know, Germany winds up and they look like they're going to punch French. They look like they're going to punch Russia. And they punch poor Belgium, who was just standing there minding its own business. Another clever way of describing this is the Russian response, where Russia, you know, winds up, gets ready to throw a haymaker, and misses so badly that they fall over anyways and almost kind of punch themselves. The French in this telling uh, get thrown through a window, but they still get back up and decide to fight some more. They're all bloody, they're falling apart, but they're, you know, they're very courageous and they're going to keep fighting. In the end, Britain, France, and America win, and after the fight is over, they all agree that Germany threw the first punch, so the whole thing is just Germany's fault. While Germany is still unconscious, they go through its pockets, steal its wallet, and buy drinks for all their friends. Everyone leaves, and when Germany wakes up, it starts plotting how to get revenge. It's kind of a comical way of thinking of, of World War I, but one that I think is, uh, is very effective and kind of gives you the sense of the flow of the action, if you will, and how important the alliance system is in leading to the, the massive amount of fighting. Okay, all joking aside, let's return to the summer of 1914. In the aftermath of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, Austria-Hungary decided to use the tragedy as an opportunity for war with Serbia. And the backstory here is, as I mentioned a few moments ago, Austria-Hungary is basically a medieval institution. It is a dynastic state. That Why are people Austro-Hungarians? What is their purpose? Why do they follow the emperor? It's because of the emperor. It's because of the dynastic relationships that you have this family that's ruling over this multinational empire going all the way back into the 15th, 16th century, depending on when you want to look at it and, and how you want to calculate it. But basically, you have this late medieval, early modern institution that has all these subjects who owe their loyalty because of basically feudalism. But by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, that equation is beginning to break down. We don't have feudalism anymore. We don't, I mean, we still have lords and we still have nobles and things like that, but they've lost a lot of their power 
And the idea, as we've explored before, that you owe your allegiance to some noble because of where you were born or because of who your, your parents were, that idea has been thrown out the window. What begins to replace it is the idea of the national community. The idea that our bonds are formed not through oaths and, and hereditary alliances and things like that, but they are born through our language, our culture, that we have this shared sense of values and these things that bind us together. And so the more and more you start thinking about the world that way, then the more and more you less think of yourself as a Habsburg subject, and the more and more you begin to think of yourself as German, Croat, Hungarian, Czech, etc. So Austria-Hungary kind of needs to prove the strength of its monarchy. Right? It has to prove to its own citizens why they should want to be a part of this political community if it's not based on the idea of national cohesion or national independence. Now, making things worse for the Austro-Hungarians is they don't just live in a vacuum, but they have to their southeast this small, budding, rising state called Serbia. And in Serbia, nationalism was very popular. Serbians had relatively recently gained their full independence from the Ottoman Empire. And as they looked around, they saw the decaying Ottomans, they saw the Austro-Hungarians as kind of a, a flawed and old rival, and they said, look, we are the, at the beginning stages of a national development here, a national development that one day will include all South Slavic people. If you ever go to a place like Croatia, you can speak Serbian. It's not the exact same. Uh, but it's fairly close, and, and Serbs and Croats can understand each other probably like 99.5%. Um, during the uh, communist period, it was actually taught as a single language called Serbo-Croatian, although there's, there's little minor differences between the two. Serbia sees itself as the next version of Prussia, the next version of Piedmont. It looks around and says this is the early stages, again, of, of becoming a larger national state. And we're going to win the allegiance of people who just happen to be subjects of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in particular, the closest area where you have not just a bunch of South Slavic people, but you have ethnic Serbs, is Bosnia. And so the Archduke's visit in 1914, it's not accidental that this is going to trigger war between the two countries. right? It is at the flashpoint of this fight that really is you know, for the future existence of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so for Austro-Hungary, the crisis presents an opportunity to show Serbia who is the boss in the region. Now, Serbia had actually just fought two other wars. They fight the First Balkan War in 1912 and the Second Balkan War in 1913. And so they're not really well equipped for another war. Yes, they've got a lot of veterans, they've got a lot of combat experience, but they're also exhausted. They've also just, you know, spent all their money. They've used up a lot of their munitions. They need time to rearm, resupply. And so instead of just saying, okay, we're going to fight the Austro-Hungarians one-on-one, they will appeal to Russia for help. The Serbs basically appeal to the two countries' common Slavic and Eastern Orthodox roots. Even today, as we're watching the conflict in Ukraine right now, most countries in Europe are very, very sort of pro-Ukrainian, Serbia may be an exception. Why is that? Because for several centuries, Serbia and Russia have had very, very close relationships. 
Russia has acted as a kind of, again, protector of their fellow Eastern Orthodox Slavs. Now, Russia, on its part, is receptive to the idea of war, especially with Austria, because basically during 1853, there's this uh, war called the Crimean War. France and Britain will declare war on Russia as a response to a Russian attack on Turkey. And basically, the Austro-Hungarians, who were just saved five years earlier by the Russian army, instead of siding with Russia or just remaining neutral, they decide, hey, we're going to put a large army on the border so that the Russians have to keep soldiers there as well. So they kind of betrayed Russia in many ways. Now, Russia had also just fought a recent war in uh, Japan or against Japan in 1905, uh, and they lose. They lose a shocking war to most Europeans at the time. Most Europeans thought, oh, we're European. We're better than the rest of the world. Of course we conquer them. And then here's this mighty Russian army, and they get basically routed by the Japanese. It's incredibly embarrassing. Their Pacific fleet is, is sunk pretty easily. They send over their Baltic fleet. It takes forever to get there. It shows up, and then it's annihilated in a single battle. So Russia wants war to be able to reassert its own sort of strength, its own sort of prestige, if you will. Austria-Hungary, of course, is no dummies. They're uh, well aware that Russia could be a problem. And so they had been part of an alliance with Germany and Italy called the Triple Alliance. Now, the alliance was supposed to be defensive, and the Italians kind of felt like, well, you know, Austria-Hungary, you sort of started this. We're we're not really going to get you back uh, in this fight. And of course, in 1915, they actually decided to attack Austria-Hungary. But the Austro-Hungarian-German alliance was very, very strong. And so basically, again, I'm kind of charting out the dominoes here. Why does World War I start? Well, a big part of it is the alliance system. Once you have a conflict that breaks out in one place, it is naturally going to draw in all the other major countries in Europe. Now, there's a second reason that this becomes such a big deal, and that's in part because of the issue of mobilization. So before we go any further, let's talk about mobilization and what that is, because it's, again, such a huge reason why the war breaks out, and, and why it's like once you light the fire, couldn't they put the fire out? Couldn't someone sit down and say, wait a minute, let's not go too far. Let's avoid this iceberg, if you will. But mobilization kind of makes that impossible. Mobilization is the idea of how you're going to bring up your reserves and get your troops ready to fight uh, in a war. Basically, before the French Revolution, Most countries have standing armies that they use to fight. These are professionals. These are paid soldiers. They sit around. They train for war. They get ready for war. And when war breaks out, you march them over to the battlefield. You fight a big, decisive battle against your enemy. And the war is over and someone wins. Now, occasionally you need additional conscripts, depending on the size of the war. But war is pretty normal. Uh, It's basically a, a seasonal thing. War is, you know, the idea that you're campaigning, that you're fighting... It is not an exceptional state, as it is viewed today. Now, one of the things that happens during the French Revolution, and especially in the Napoleonic Wars, is that the French realize that you can draw more heavily on your own citizens, especially if you find a way to motivate them to fight. We talked earlier in the podcast about this idea of, well, what would it take, what would you sacrifice for? What what could I use to appeal to you where you would say, I would be willing to risk my life for the good of 
everyone else. When we say that we're going to do that because of feudal relations, we say that, well, you owe your service to your Lord. It's not the most convincing, it's not the most motivating factor. What the French begin to find during the French Revolution, however, is if you say, we're out here fighting for France, we're part of this larger community that we all exist in and that will continue to exist even after we're gone, the idea of sacrificing for something bigger than yourself or for any particular individual, that is very powerful. The idea that I might lay down my life for my community, well, maybe I would do that because it's not about me because it allows me to live on in perpetuity as, as a name, as a legend, as someone who sacrificed and was honored by the entire community. So during the Napoleonic era, armies grow uh, almost exponentially. Napoleon takes about 500,000 soldiers on his way to Moscow in 1812. So in order to better prepare for future conflicts, because obviously once you have all these soldiers, you have to train them, you have to drill them, you have to equip them, right? it can get complicated, it can take a long time. One of the things that most European states do is they realize we need a reserve. We need people who have the training to be soldiers, but who are not necessarily going to spend 20, 30, 40 years in military service. And so what they begin to do is to require some type of military service. You have to serve in the army for a year or two, and when you're done, you can go about your business, you can go have your life, but you exist in some kind of reserve unit. And if there's a war, well, then we can call you back to service. We can give you your gun. You already know how to shoot. You already know how to march. And so this will make the nation better prepared for the idea of war. I should note before we go further, the UK is an exception here. The UK never really had a large army. Uh, they don't have a large reserve service, in part because they live on an island. They have the world's best navy, and so they don't really need it one could argue. Just to give an idea of what this looked like, in France, for example, after 1913, men were supposed to join the army during the year they turned 21 and remain in it for three years. Now, obviously not everybody does this. You have to pass medical clearances. There are exemptions that can be made. Right? It's universal service, but it's not really universal service. But most Frenchmen do serve in the army. And once their service is over, you go into the reserves for 10 years. So you're not on active duty, you're not expecting to fight, but it's not out of the question that it could ever happen. As you get older, you rotate back farther and farther into units that are harder and harder to call up. Some of these become territorial defense units, right? So they're only going to fight defensively if someone invades France. Think about like a National Guard type system. And this system is pretty similar. Germany, Austria, Hungary, Russia, they all have Again, this basic idea of a reserve and that you'll call up the reserves in time of war. Um, interestingly enough, France and Germany start this kind of back and forth where they keep changing their laws about who has to serve and how long they have to serve because they're both trying to grow their armies larger than, than the other one. But you basically have the idea here, right? It's that the active army maintains the military structure. And in the case of war, you can call up your reserves. And those reserves don't just all go into a reserve unit here, here, and here. You fill out the existing active professional militaries, that you have non-commissioned officers in all the units, you have people with experience, uh, and, and everything is ready to go relatively soon. Right? It doesn't happen overnight. You have to call people up. They have to leave their places of civilian employment. They have to go to 
uh, to get their uh, weapons. They have to go to the front lines, right? So once you start this order of mobilization, you're going to get a lot of troops, but it's also going to take a little while before we get to that point. So basically, before industrialization, there is a significant delay between the declaration of war and the moment that you can actually mass those forces and fight that war. Before the 1860s, this isn't really a big deal. You're talking about a pre-industrial society. You're talking about people that have to walk a lot of uh, distance. Maybe you have some horses. It's going to take a long time to get everybody together. You, you basically would rather be fighting in the summer or the spring. Uh, winter, there tends to be less fighting because uh, obviously it's harder to move uh, resources around. But the development of the railroad by the 1860s rapidly speeds this process along. And the first ones to kind of figure this out are the Prussians. During the Austro-Prussian War in 1866, which is part of this larger story of the Wars of German Unification, that you can uh, hear more about in our episode on that topic, one of the reasons that Germany is able to win the war is simply a question of speed. They're able to use the railroad to get their reservists to the front faster, and they are able to uh, then deliver the decisive blow at the Battle of Königgrätz in 1866. And so mobilization becomes contingent on speed. Everyone wants to mobilize as quickly as possible because if you beat the other guy to it, then you seize the initiative. A really great kind of analogy or metaphor to think about this is the idea of a a Wild West gunfight, right? So you're there, you're Austria, Hungary, uh, you're Germany, you're France, you're, you're sitting there, it's a wild west, you know, you're on the uh, town square at noon, it's going to be a shootout, and you're looking the other guy in the eye, and you're moving your fingers back and forth, and you're getting ready to go for your pistol. Once you start a movement towards your pistol, you're committed. There isn't time to start and then stop, and wait and say, well, okay, I reach for my pistol, did he reach for his pistol? Is he aiming at me? Okay, he might be aiming at me, but is he really going to shoot? You don't have time to think. At that moment that your opponent goes for his gun, you got to go for your gun too. And this is essentially what happens. Once one country begins to mobilize, whether or not they've actually declared war, you have to do the same. Because basically, you're dead if you don't and they attack. You don't have time, as I said, to let them go for their gun, and then you wait and see, are they really going to shoot before you go for yours? And so when you add this to the alliance system, Once one country decided to mobilize, pretty much everybody else has to do it. It's also, you know, if you think about it, you're mobilizing, you're calling all these people up. It's an incredible disruption to society. You can't really mobilize without going through with fighting the war. It's not really like a drill that you just, you do a drill and, oh, okay, we did the drill. Now everybody go back. It wasn't a real war. Right? Once you do this, there's an enormous cost to your society. And so as soon as, again, Uh, Serbia actually mobilizes first in this conflict, but Austria-Hungary was basically planning to, so uh, the two of them kind of go hand in hand. Once the two of them start to do it, the die is cast and everything follows. This is pretty much what happens. On July 23rd, the Austrian ambassador presents Serbia with a list of demands, including the right to basically arrest Serbian citizens in Serbia itself. They present this whole list of, okay, you know, these are the things you need to do. You need to stop funding terrorism. You need to uh, give us some records. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But they include this provision about being able to arrest Serbian citizens in Serbia 
to directly challenge the notion of Serbian sovereignty. Either the Serbian state exists and is powerful and independent, or it does not. And so, of course, the Serbs reject this this ultimatum, and they begin to mobilize in order to fight off the Austro-Hungarian attack. Austria-Hungary, of course, mobilizes the next day. They kind of were planning to do it anyways, as I said, but uh, they actually do it the day afterwards. Now, the Russian response was to try to pressure Austria-Hungary to back down. So they began a partial mobilization on July 25th, the idea being that they're going to mobilize against Austria-Hungary, but not really against Germany. And so for the next couple of days, you have these diplomatic tensions that are increasing. The various governments are going back and forth. You have some people that want a war. You have some people that want peace. They're working the scenes. They're talking to the ambassadors. They're telegraphing. But eventually on July 30th, Germany says to Russia, if you do not stop your mobilization and reverse it, then we will mobilize. Nicholas II, who is not known as the most decisive autocrat in, uh, in Russian history, long history of autocrats, long history of uh, monarchs, very strong-willed, Nicholas II is not known as being one of them. So he kind of waffles back and forth, but in the end of the day, he declares full mobilization. Germany then tells Russia, if you don't stop your full mobilization, we will interpret that as basically a declaration of war. And the Germans also then say, look, we know that France and Russia, you guys are allies. France, declare yourself neutral and hand over several towns as collateral, or we're going to declare war on you too. The French, of course, are not prepared to back away. Quite the opposite. They are looking forward to a war. And so on July the 31st, France mobilizes, and Germany follows suit on the 1st of August. On the 3rd, Germany declares war on France. And on the 4th, after being refused free passage through Belgium, and we'll talk more in a second about why that was, the Germans declared war on the Belgians as well. The British then had promised to guarantee Belgian neutrality. They give Germany an ultimatum. When Germany ignores the ultimatum, they too declare war on Austria-Hungary and Germany. Now, I want you to think for a moment what it must have been like to have lived through this moment. In the span of about a week, suddenly most of Europe is now at war. What would this feel like? How would we react? For most of us living in the United States or Europe, we really don't have a lot of experience, thankfully, with these types of situations. We're talking about formal declarations of war. Obviously, the United States has been at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. One could argue in in other places a little bit as well. But there's not like a formal declaration of war. We haven't had one of those in quite some time. But the few times that we have had these moments, think about the outbreak of war in Iraq in 1991 or 2003, the start of the Ukraine war this past spring, which isn't an American thing, but is uh, obviously we saw basically war starting. There's often both an explosion of patriotism, but also a sense of dread or anxiety. In the United States, the way that we used to talk about this was basically Vietnam syndrome. This is the idea that every time you get involved in a conflict, you ask yourself, is this the next Vietnam? Is this the next quagmire that now people are going to be giving their lives, uh, dying in large numbers, and for an unclear purpose? I don't want to get too sidetracked, uh, but just to give you a sense of what you know people are talking about with Vietnam 
why there's so much hostility and so much frustration with it. Um, there's a number of cases where the, uh, the Viet Cong uh, and the North Vietnamese Army will take over a hill in South Vietnam. And Americans will come, they'll charge the hill, they'll bomb the hill, they'll take uh, significant losses, and eventually they wind up taking the hill. And then two or three days later, everybody leaves and goes home. And so it's like, well, why did those 1,000 people, why did those 500 people, why did anyone have to die to take a hill that then nobody really cared about in the first place? This is what Vietnam syndrome means in the American experience. Are the sacrifices that are going to be inevitable that come with this war, are they worth the cause? Of course, as I said, we also see a great deal of patriotism a flag-waving, pride, demonstrations of support, rallies. Uh, if you go back and look at especially footage from 2003 or 2001 when the uh, wars started in Iraq and Afghanistan that the United States was involved in, massive outpouring of patriotism, massive outpouring of, of support for those soldiers and those troops. But rarely would one describe this as a sense of celebration. Right? People want to support the troops. People want to pray for the troops. But there's not a sense of celebration. We don't get excited about the idea that, hey, we're going to go kill people. Hey, we're going to go invade this country or drop bombs on that country. Won't that be awesome? If tomorrow the United States, or for those of you that live in other countries, if your country announced it was joining one of the sides in the war in Ukraine, would you celebrate? You might, again, pray for the troops. You might rally around the flag. But would you actually celebrate? Would you run onto the street and start high-fiving people going, yeah, hey, we're at war, this is awesome. Would you run down to your local recruiting office and say, please, please, please sign me up. Don't let the war end before I get to be a part of it. Would you get together in a big crowd and sing songs and drink beer? My guess is that probably you wouldn't. Because while we sometimes see war as necessary, the experiences of World War I and World War II have taught us that, as General Sherman once said, war is hell. It's not something that one generally wants to experience. There are people that will experience it, that are willing to do that. There are people that accept that responsibility and that sacrifice. There are people that want to support the soldiers and their families and the institutions of the army as they go into those conflicts. But for the most part, very few people will admit that they want a war to happen. But this is very different from what happened when World War I breaks out in the summer of 1914. The initial outbreak of the news that the war had begun is met by huge and enthusiastic crowds that want to show their support. Rallies are held at patriotic monuments, railway stations, which makes a lot of sense because that's you know where the troops are coming to and, and being sent out of, churches, pubs, newspaper offices, right? People want to get the latest news, so you hang out by the, uh, the old newspaper office. We don't really have those uh, anymore. There's a couple of newspapers, but a lot of them are being torn down and, and relocated. But if you go and you just Google this, you can find the most incredible pictures coming from this period. People overflowing army recruiting offices, marching to assembly points, being showered with kisses and flowers from young women, which don't underestimate the appeal of, of gender in this moment. 
But you're living in a world where people are not supposed to be dating. People are not supposed to be spending time with the opposite sex. And so if you're some 17 or 18-year-old French boy, German boy, Hungarian boy, you know, this is a really great opportunity to get some attention. In fact, there's a, actually a very famous but controversial photo that really illustrates this enthusiasm for war that's published in 1932. Uh, supposedly, it was discovered in 1929 by the personal photographer of Adolf Hitler, a guy named uh, Heinrich Hoffmann. And so supposedly Hoffman is kind of going through his office in 1929, and he finds this picture of the crowd at the Odeonsplatz in Munich on the day that the German declaration of war was uh, read out loud. And so he's heard this story from Hitler that Hitler happened to be there, and he says, huh, let me take out my magnifying glass, let me see if I can find Hitler, and of course, there he is in the crowd with a giant smile on his face. Now, some historians have questioned the authenticity of this photograph, but nevertheless, like the basic idea is, is given by this image, right? You get the point. Large crowds, enthusiastic, excited, happy that their country is going to war. Now, it's worth noting that this is not just the usual suspects who espouse this patriotic sentiment. As I've been saying, you know, most people don't really want a war. Most people wouldn't get excited about a war. But again, the, these people that are celebrating the war, it goes beyond I guess that small minority that might say, hey, war is, is good, war is, is fun, we should have more of it. And what I'm talking about here, especially, are the working classes and the socialist parties. Now, for half a century, these working class movements have made the argument, hey, war is bad for us. War is going to be working class people shooting other working class people. War is going to be the elites dividing the working man. Taking that, that maxim from Marx, you know, workers of the world unite. War is going to be dividing the workers of the world. And so the socialist parties, the working class parties, theoretically, they are supposed to be opposed to war. When it comes down to it, though, almost all of these parties, with, with very few exceptions, vote for war credits, vote to support the war, openly attack the other enemy combatants, not based on class differences, but based on national differences. We also, of course, have religion. You have Catholics, you have Protestants in both countries, in all the various countries, Eastern Orthodox. Catholic and Protestants, for the most part, fervently support the war in their countries. We're talking here about ministers, but also priests. We're talking about members of the clergy. One exception to this kind of interesting is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church had been led by uh, Pope Pius X, but Pope Pius is actually very sick, and he dies on August 20th, shortly after the war breaks out. And so at this moment of extreme crisis, the church is not going to be able to play a decisive role in slowing down the rush to war. Because the Pope, as I said, was sickly. Uh, he would eventually die very soon into the war. His successor, Benedict XV, vociferously opposes the war, but by that point, it's too late, right? The toothpaste is out of the tube. What are you going to do? Why do most Europeans in 1914 love the idea of a world war? As I mentioned, we probably would say we wouldn't enjoy or celebrate the notion of war today. What was different then? And there's a couple of interrelated answers. The first, of course, is the most basic reason that people tend to like war, which is the idea of glory. 
glory and masculinity and violence have been tied together since probably prehistory. Right? If you go back, and what are the ancient Greeks? What are the stories that they're telling themselves about who's a hero? It's not some uh, philosopher. It's not Plato or Aristotle. And if we go back even deeper than that, it's the legends of Troy. It's about Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad and Ajax and Achilles and Hector. War is a place to win glory. War is a place to perform heroic acts. So it's not surprising that this is still the case in 1914. Really, before 1914, there are some sort of exceptions to this, but before 1914, a lot of war is direct contact, right? You see your enemy, you fight with your enemy, you try to kill your enemy, you look him in the eye and he looks you in the eye. You see who has the nerves, who has the strength, who has the endurance. Now, this begins to change in World War I when a, a very significant percentage of the casualties are caused by artillery and you never ever get to look each other in the eye. But going into it, people still thought in terms of glory. Moreover, most wars in living memory had been short and glorious for the winning side. The Prussian victory, as I mentioned, over Austria-Hungary in 1866, the whole thing takes seven weeks. It's just under two months, right? It's not even a full season. The crucial battle in the Franco-Prussian War at Sedan, it takes place along a similar time frame. Now, the, the Franco-Prussian War is a bit different because there are elements of the French society that want to keep fighting. There's a commune that's set up in Paris. It gets complicated. But the big, decisive battle, there's basically one. Now, alongside these examples are the experience of colonial wars, where Europeans have much better technology and also much better infrastructure, much better logistics. And so they tend to be fairly one-sided affairs. So when the armies begin to gather in early August 1914, there is this expectation that the war is going to be short, and of course our side is going to win. And so as a result, you're talking about small sacrifices or limited amounts of sacrifice, big payoff, big kind of victory, big glory. Now a second reason that we could say people were excited about the war is nationalism. By the start of the 20th century, nationalism had become by far the most dominant ideology in Europe. And each generation wanted to do its best to make its contribution to the natural future. So if you're a German man coming of age, or let's say 18, 19, it's 1914, what are your parents and grandparents talking about? They're talking about the German wars of unification. They're talking about all that stuff that they did that, that won them glory the sacrifices that they made or that they risked for the nation. Well, what have you done? Have you done your part? If you go back and you talk to uh, Vietnam veterans, especially from the beginning of the Vietnam War, they say, well, why did you go and serve your country? Why did you go on a fight? And they say, well, because the greatest generation did it against the Nazis, because grandpa's generation did it against the Germans during World War I, because I might even have service going back to the Civil War, the American Revolution. But there is this sense that each generation needs to do some major contribution for the nation. And so in a place like Germany, for example, the idea of another war, of a glorious end to the war, of territorial annexations, and especially the idea of completing unification, the idea that yeah, there are ethnic Germans who are living outside the boundaries of Germany, 
Let us bring them home. Let us find the Flemish population of Belgium and remind them that they're really kind of a version of German. Now, the Flemish, some believe this. Most would say, well, we're kind of like cousins, but it's not the same you know, thing exactly, and we'd rather kind of be autonomous. Though it gets a little complicated, right, in these romantic dreams. But the basic idea was, let us finish the work of creating Germany. If you're French, let us get revenge on those awful Germans who stole Alsace and Lorraine in 1871. For Austria-Hungary, if you're a supporter of the monarchy, right, again, this is your chance to do something for your community. Now, to say that nationalism played a big role, to say that glory played a big role, obviously these are not earth-shattering, right? You guys probably knew this. This is somewhat uh, obvious. But there's a third reason that a number of people look upon the war initially as a good thing, and that might surprise you. That reason is anti-modernism. What do I mean by that? I mean, as modernism has set in, as we, we talk about this, this questioning of boundaries, we talked about this a little bit in our episode on the fin de siècle, as people begin experimenting more and more, as they start crossing boundaries, gendered boundaries, sexual boundaries, class boundaries, it creates a lot of anxiety. And so what we need as an antidote to this is, as one pastor put it, a sermon from God to man. We need atonement. We need to get serious. We need a wake-up call. We need an intervention. And so basically what you begin to see from a variety of, of different areas is that reformers see the war as something that's, again, going to make people remember what truly matters. The war and the suffering are going to bring people back to God, back to a sense of place, back to a sense of no experimentation. Participation in the war, again, it's seen as a form of atonement or as part of a crusade against the unbelievers, the wicked. Germans love talking about how the war against the Russians is a war against the uncivilized. It's a colonial struggle, even if we wouldn't usually think of it in those terms. Again, uh, a lot of people that are, are supporting this, it's not just uh, the usual suspects, it's people like priests. One priest summed up the spirit of the times when he noted, the quote, the events of the war have called us from the fateful path of sin back to belief in and fear of God. End of quote. So for the next six weeks, as the war begins, as the armies go hurtling forth, especially in places like East Prussia, in Belgium, in the northern part of France, this moment of patriotic fervor and expectation continues. Newspaper reports contain little detail information. They only say, hey, we're winning, we're advancing, we've stopped the enemies. Even if we've had a kind of defeat, it's not, well, we were defeated. It's, well, we inflicted devastating casualties on the enemy and conducted a strategic retreat. Okay, so far we've been discussing the background and context of the war. Let's get into the fighting itself. As we just mentioned, all the armies involved in the fighting were acutely aware of the need for speed when it came to starting the war. Nowhere was this maxim held more dearly than in Germany, which had spent several decades thinking about the challenges of fighting a two-front war. Right? Basically, by the time you get to the 1890s, France and, and Russia are starting to get uh, very friendly with one another. Germany kind of sees this. It's very obvious. 
Uh, and they begin to realize, uh, you know, we, we might have to fight a two-front war. So how can we do this knowing that the Russians have more soldiers than we do? You know, to fight Russia one-on-one would be very difficult. Plus, we have a, an almost the same size France over there. How are we going to fight this two-front war? So the answer that they came up with is crafted most explicitly by the German chief of staff, Alfred von Schlieffen, in 1905. And basically what Schlieffen says is we're not going to be able to fight both these guys at the same time. So what we need to do is to decisively defeat the smaller French army quickly before the slower but more formidable Russian war machine could bring its full weight to bear. But how could you do this? France has a modern army. France has spent decades building forts along the Franco-German border. The French have basically been preparing for this since 1871. The preferred idea for the German general staff would be to fight a defensive war in the West, use the Rhine as an added protection. But this doesn't solve the problem of knocking France out quickly. You'd need the French to make a headlong sort of charge into your defenses, which in reality, that's actually what the French ended up doing. But it's not going to help you timing-wise, right? You're, you're giving the French the initiative when you need to have it. So German thinkers come up with a different approach, one that sends the bulk of their forces to attack France from the north through neutral Belgium. Now, if you've ever been in this part of, uh, of the world, the area that we're talking about, there are some hills, but for the most part, it's generally flat. You have kind of nice rivers that move downstream. It's very open countryside. A lot of farms, a lot of food. And so basically to attack France from the north through Belgium, you might be able to get behind their army, either capture Paris or cut off the French soldiers that are along the border. But either way, you're going to win this decisive uh, war. A great way to think about this, because I know we're doing this through audio, is to think about like a hinge. And the idea is that by going up into Belgium, the top part of the hinge can close down much higher and can get behind the French army and kind of trap them in this, again, this hinge or this jaw. Or if you like this analogy, it's kind of like a hammer and an anvil, right? The one German army along the, uh, the, along the front will, will hold the French. The other one racing through Belgium will come around from behind and basically pin them together and destroy them. After one month of progress to the west, German forces are going to begin to crash down on Paris and the French army. And according to the, you know, the German general staff, this is going to take 42 days. Within a month and a half, the French will be defeated, and we can turn our eyes towards Russia, who will just be completing mobilization around that time. And so basically, this is what the Germans do. Uh, they don't have quite as many soldiers in the top part of the hinge or the top part of the jaw, if you will. Uh, they have to, to play with the numbers a little bit. They have to deal, as we'll see in a second, with events in East Prussia. But they do. They roll through Belgium and they try to get around the French army and to defeat the British expeditionary force and the Belgian counterattacks and again to go around. And this is basically what they do. The, uh, the German army gets about 10 miles away from the city of Paris. However, in early September, a gap opens up between two of the invading German armies, specifically between von Kluck's first army, which is the one that again is sort of at the top of the hinge, if, you're, uh, if you want to use that sort of hammer and anvil uh, analogy, the, the top of the hammer, the, the, the point of the hammer, is von Kluck. And so he begins to open up a gap with uh, von Bülow's second army. 
And this is a really big deal again because von Kluck is supposed to be the one that delivers the decisive blow. And so the Entente commanders realize, hey, we can send forces up through this gap. We can cut off von Kluck's army or we can force him to retreat because otherwise his supply lines are going to get cut and they don't want to lose that large an army. And so basically in early September, this is the beginning of something called the Battle of the Marne. The Battle of the Marne is, again, these uh, uh, basically Entente forces, French, British, they launch up through that gap and they will drive von Kluck and force him to retreat. Incidentally, a really interesting part of this story is that, you know, where do the, the French forces come from to, uh, to exploit this gap? Well, part of it is that they're reservists that are brought up from Paris by taxicab. So basically the story, and it's, it's somewhat of a legend, I mean, it really happened, um, how decisive it was, some historians disagree with, but basically you have this, uh, this entire French army that is brought to the battlefield by taxi, and they have their meters on. So then, you know, imagine, where are you going? Okay, we're going to the front. They drive up to the front. They drop off the uh, the soldiers there. They come back. And then later on, they say, okay, you know, you ran the meter for, you know, an hour and 15 minutes. You got to pay us. And they actually were paid. So this becomes this legend of the people of Paris rallying in support of the nation to fight against the Germans to save the city of Paris. Now, once this takes place, the front lines begin to stabilize. And each side begins to realize, okay, we don't want to just stand here and wait around to get shot at. Let us dig holes in the ground that we can hide in. And they so start, they start basically building trenches. Now, at first, these trenches are pretty basic. You dig a hole in the ground so you don't get shot. Uh, you want to hide to somewhere from some of the artillery shells. But over time, they become increasingly sophisticated. Over time, you start using things like sandbags. And you dig deeper and deeper and deeper to protect yourself from mortars. You build bunkers deep underground to protect against the artillery. Pretty quickly, you decide, hey, one trench is not going to do. What happens if the enemy overruns my trench? I need to dig a second trench behind that. And eventually, they start having four levels of trenches with additional kind of communication, communication trenches made. And so gradually, with the passage of time, it gets harder and harder to directly attack the enemy. By late September, each side realizes, hey, we've got to get around the other side. Where are we going to do that? We can't go back towards the Franco-German border because that's already fortified. So we're going to try to outflank the other side by moving increasingly north and increasingly west. And so they go back and forth, and this culminates in the First Battle of Ypres, or uh, Wipers, as the British call it, in November of 1914. After the Battle of Wipers, there's not really anywhere else to go. Wipers, uh, Ypres, is is very much in sort of the northern part of Belgium, the northwestern part of Belgium. And so once you get there, there is no more war of mobility on the western front. It will become a war of stalemate. And the only way to break this is to break a hole in the enemy's lines. Now, before we get into a discussion of what happens in the East and a discussion of what happens in the Balkans, it's worth noting that by this point, all three armies, the major armies involved in the fighting, the British, the German, and the French, all three had already sustained massive amounts of casualties. The Belgians had as well. Don't get me wrong. We don't want to leave off uh, Belgium. But the three main combatants that we usually talk about already have massive amounts of casualties. We're talking over 800,000 Germans who are dead or wounded. The French 
had lost almost 500,000 men, and the British just under 100,000. Now, these massive losses are not lost on the domestic populations of the country that they come from. But the sacrifices are seen through the prism of war. And, of course, through the prism of propaganda. Right? This is not just the news reporting what's going on, the news being out in the field. There is tight censorship that exists in almost all of these countries. great way to illustrate this actually comes from after the war. Uh, you have the outbreak of what's called the Spanish flu. Right? The Spanish flu devastates everybody, kills millions of people all over the globe. Oh, those Spanish, why did they not do something about their flu? You know, had only they done it, they would have you know, prevented catastrophe. Well, the thing is, is that the flu does not actually come from Spain. The Spanish flu had nothing to do with Spain directly. The Spanish flu actually starts in the United States. I want to say it's, it's first located in like Kansas uh, or someplace like that, but it, is, it comes from the United States. But the United States is involved in World War I. They're in the middle of the war. They don't want the Germans to know, oh, we have this massive disease outbreak that might you know, affect our fighting capability. So they keep it tightly under wraps. And the same is true in Britain. The same is true in France. The same is true in Germany. None of the countries that are fighting in World War I want to admit in 1918 that this is, outbreak is going on. Well, Spain's not at war in 1918. And so they are like, oh, you know, yeah, the flu is here. This is bad. We you know pandemic. And so it becomes known as the Spanish flu because of the tight censorship during the war. Regardless of why people felt that way, there's a great example of this kind of patriotism, this kind of interpretation of sacrifice called the Kindermord at Ypres, where basically you have a German division that was comprised primarily of inexperienced students. Now, in reality, actually, it's, it's not a very large percentage of the unit that is made up of students. But in the way that it gets told, in the way that it's reproduced in sort of German public, it almost is like a company of students, just like during the Napoleonic Wars, when there were actually companies of students that fought against Napoleon at the, at the Battle of Nations in 1813. And so the, the kind of legend is that this group of, uh, of students, they're singing patriotic songs, they're, they're just so in love with their nation, and they're decimated during this frontal attack near the town of Langemark. But again, the way the story gets told, they're singing patriotic songs as they charge, they cover themselves in glory as they die in great numbers. When I say great numbers, I'm talking about a 70% casualty rate. These massive losses in 1914 make sense to people because they are understood as sacrifices for a higher purpose. Why did we lose that entire generation, that entire class, that entire group? Well, you know, it sucks. We really wish that we hadn't lost them. It's an enormous sacrifice. But there is a glorious future coming. We will remember their sacrifices. We will sing their praises. If you think about the United States and memory of wars, think about the way that people talk about not just the greatest generation as a whole, but think about those men that died on the beaches of Normandy. Think about the way that we treat their memories. Think about the way we honor them, that we still make movies about them, that we still tell stories about them. In many ways, those men will be immortal because we will remember them for what they did in a way that we probably won't remember the men who died, let's say, fighting in North Africa, especially at the start of World War II when the, the U.S. Army was not quite as effective 
as it would later become, right? We're not singing the praises of the invasion of Sicily quite as much. So again, these massive losses in 1914, massive as they are, they make sense to people as a sacrifice made for a glorious future for a higher purpose. Keep that in mind as we move forward in this discussion of the war. Okay, let's talk about the East. Now remember the basic German plan was to strike in the West to defeat France before Russia could advance in the East because let's face it, Russia is a huge country. It's very, very spread out. We don't have, we have the railroad in Russia at this point, but it's not well integrated. The Russian economy is like semi-industrialized. Some parts are, are really well industrialized. Other parts are still, you know, living just as they did a thousand years before. So the Russians are supposed to take their sweet time in getting their act together. However, the Russian army surprises just about everybody, and they mobilize a lot faster than the Germans had anticipated. The Russians actually launched their own offensive in August of 1914. Of course, this is when you're plotting military strategy. You know, I'm going to do this to the enemy. I'm going to do that to the enemy. You always have to think about, okay, what is the enemy going to try to do to me? And the Germans had kind of failed on that front. So the Russians have, obviously, a lot of space. They've got armies in different places. And they've got two main armies that are facing the Germans. One advancing from the west, from what is today Latvia and Lithuania. The other that's going to move up from Poland, from Warsaw. The Germans, by contrast, only have one army opposing it. And this is slightly smaller than each of the two Russian armies. So theoretically, if the Russians time things right, they will have their own sort of pincher. They will have their own kind of press that they're coming at them from both sides, and they're going to squash this smaller German army between them. For most of August, this is what looks like is going to happen. The two Russian armies drive into eastern Prussia. They terrify the Germans who retreat before them. Not just the army, but ethnic Germans as well. However, the two armies don't move at the same speed. The southern army, commanded by General Alexander Samsonov, tends to move more quickly. And even if this wasn't such a big problem, right, so you've got armies moving at different speeds, uh, at least if you were, you know, keeping your, uh, your location secret, if you were doing a good job of information management, then the opposing forces might not know, you know, when you're going to show up, even if you're not showing up at the same time. However, the Russians are incredibly careless. They broadcast their wireless transmissions without encryption. They say, oh, this is what we're doing with our troop movements. And so the Germans basically figure out, huh, we can race down, fight that southern army first, one-on-one, -on -one, and even if they're a little bit bigger than we are, at least it's, it's a, close to a fair fight. And once we've beaten them, now we can go back and defeat the other army advancing from the east. And so this is basically what they do. On August 23rd, the Germans, led by General Paul von Hindenburg and his hotshot chief of staff, Erich von Ludendorff, Keep those names in, in mind because we're going to meet them again uh, several times in this, uh, in this podcast. They begin a massive encircling movement against Samsonov near the village of Tannenberg. Now, the battle isn't actually fought at Tannenberg. It's nearby, but it's, it's not at the Battle of Tannenberg. But Tannenberg was the site of a key medieval battle between the Teutonic Knights and the Kingdom of Poland. Uh, basically, it's the moment that the Polish kingdom begins to assert its dominance over those, uh, those Teutonic knights who tend to be ethnically German. 
So by naming it the Battle of Tandenberg 2.0, Hindenburg is basically saying, look, history is reversing itself. We have avenged this defeat that you know, we had long ago, and it, it allows them to use it for a lot of propaganda. Hindenburg becomes a celebrity. Later on during the war, he'll actually become sort of, not the dictator because you always still have the Kaiser, but basically the Kaiser does whatever Hindenburg uh, tells them to do. Later on, not to give too much away, but Hindenburg will become president of Germany because so many people view him as a war hero. Now, the Battle of Tannenberg actually lasts for about a week. It's fought over a 60-mile front. It is an incredible battle. It is complicated. Uh, There are a lot of lakes. There are a lot of little rivers. Uh, It's not your your typical Napoleonic, okay, here's the field of battle. Who's going to flank whom? And and then it's over. It is a massive battle. It's really hard for us, I think, to comprehend today. In the end, the Germans completely surround and destroy the larger Russian force. They take over 100,000 prisoners and cause over 100,000 casualties while only taking about 30,000 casualties themselves. This allows them two weeks later to move north using the railroad where they will confront the other army commanded by a guy named Paul von Rennenkampf. Now, Rennenkampf is actually Russian even though he has a very German-sounding name. And at first, he kind of tries an offensive, uh, but then realizes it's not going to work. And so he fares better than Samsonov does. Uh, Samsonov actually was so devastated by the loss of his soldiers and his army that rather than retreating and telling the Tsar what happened, Samsonov actually pulls a pistol out and shoots himself in the middle of the woods. Rennenkampf doesn't have quite that level of failure, and so his Units are able to fight kind of a, uh, a fighting retreat. But nevertheless, this becomes known as a defeat, the Battle of Mysterian Lakes. And at the end of the day, the Russians have had hundreds of thousands of casualties. And what did it accomplish? Nothing. By the end of 1914, you essentially have stalemates in both the East and the West. And both sides would spend the next three years trying to overcome this condition. Now, before I go into detail about some of these better-known offensives on the Western Front, it's worth noting that there is some movement that takes place in the Balkans and in southeastern Europe. For starters, Austria-Hungary begins the war as a major power, and they try to carry out attacks into Russia and into Serbia in the fall of 1914. Both of these offensives break down and become complete failures. In Serbia, the Austro-Hungarians actually try three different times to invade little, tiny, exhausted Serbia. In the end, they do, in December, they do come in and and occupy Belgrade. Uh, Belgrade, in the pre-war geography, Belgrade's located uh, along the the, the Sava River and the Danube. And basically, the Austrians are right on the other side of the Danube. So the Austrians are in the perfect place to be able to attack literally from day one. And yet, it still takes them several months to occupy Belgrade, and even then the Serbians have a counterattack and drive them out. The Austrian losses in 1914 cost them over a fifth of their army. They're forced to retreat. They lose 150 miles of territory. The great Carpathian fortress of Premisil is besieged. And in the end, German forces are forced to come to the rescue of Austria-Hungary, engaging the Russians more or less all across the Eastern Front. Each side has battles during this period that they win, moments where they advance, 
But in the end, they kind of each cancel each other out. The big takeaway from this period, though, is the weakness of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Already by the winter of 1914, it's pretty obvious that they are going to be a junior partner. They are not capable of really successful offensive operations unless they have German soldiers there that are helping out. This becomes the prelude to a larger problem, which will manifest itself by 1918, when we basically have the falling apart or the total destruction of the Austro-Hungarian state. As I mentioned, Austria-Hungary is essentially a late medieval, early modern relic, and World War I basically exposes the inability of that structure to withstand stress. Okay, so by this point, December 1914, all of the armies fighting the war had suffered considerable losses and were under a great deal of strain. In particular, the loss of tens of thousands of seasoned officers, especially NCOs. These are non-commissioned officers. These are people that are are coming out of the ranks, that are getting uh, their commissions because of experience, because they've been in combat. They're they're soldiers that uh, a lot of soldiers look up to. But the loss of these NCOs are particularly problematic. As we'll talk about in our next episode, by this point, the civilian economies had been deeply affected and transformed by the war. That said, we're still not at a point where European society had been broken yet. One can make a very strong argument that had the war ended at this point, had there been some sort of negotiated truce, then the disaster of World War I could have been avoided. To put this another way, the brutalization that became so characteristic of warfare in the 20th century had not yet fully set in. Now, there are elements of it that are coming up already. In Serbia, uh, in the way the Serbs are treated, in Belgium especially, the way that Belgian civilians were treated by the German army, we have plenty of atrocities already in 1914. But Europe is not yet broken. As evidence of this claim, I would give you a wonderful story called The Christmas Truce of 1914. Now, this was not an organized event. It was a spontaneous truce that broke out between soldiers on Christmas Eve 1914. The backstory here is that when you get into trench warfare, despite the quality of the range of the weapons, you actually can get quite close to one another, right? Especially as you're digging at night, maybe. Uh, They actually raid each other's trenches and try to kidnap other soldiers in order to get information out of them. So you can talk to each other. You can hear one another. And in some cases, in 1914, there develops a sort of understanding between the soldiers, right? It's chow time. Why shoot at somebody during chow time? Maybe let's take a little break. You know, life living in these trenches, as we'll talk about in our next episode, life in the trenches is really hard. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of of just strain. So maybe let's just say during chow time, 5 to 6 p.m. in the afternoon, maybe let's just not shoot at each other. Let's say somebody's using the bathroom, right? Are you going to shoot somebody if you're a sniper? Are you going to shoot them while they're pooping? Isn't, isn't that like the most inhumane thing? So there becomes this sort of gentleman's agreement that at certain times, at certain places, we're just not going to shoot at each other. And so as the war goes on into December 1914, this idea of fraternization becomes increasingly common. Religion, after all, even if you say, okay, some people are Catholic, some people are Protestant, some people are Eastern Orthodox, and there are some people that are Jewish. In terms of ratio, it's, it's uh, actually more Jews serve 
uh, in the war than the uh, than the percentages in their home countries. But taken as a whole, you're still talking about a relatively small minority. So again, religion is something that they tend to share collectively. And Christmas is a particular season when Christians tend to talk an awful lot about peace, about love, and about Jesus. And so as these troops are sitting in their trenches, as they're coming within 50, 60 yards of each other, as they start singing Christmas carols, they become endowed or imbued with the spirit of the season. And they start to think, you know, maybe we should just take a little break and return to this idea of civilization. Maybe we should stop being soldiers just for a night to celebrate Christmas. And so again, it's not hard to imagine this happening. Those of you that are native English speakers, you're familiar probably with the song Silent Night. Silent Night is essentially a German song, Stille Nacht. Same tune, words are slightly different. Christmas trees, Christmas trees, of course, very popular back in 1914. Christmas trees were originally a German tradition, but it's one that the British also celebrate. So imagine, you're there in your trench, you're in the mud and the muck and the blood and the explosions and all that, and and now kind of peace has settled on the battlefield at night, and you look over and you see a Christmas tree, and you hear the familiar tune. It's not hard to imagine how some soldiers in this moment overcame the violence of the war, overcame orders not to fraternize with one another. They come out of their lines on December 24th, 1914, and they start talking to one another. They start drinking together. And in one case, it's kind of a legend. Uh, There's this this story about a soccer game that was played. Now, my guess is that this was not a, a soccer game where, okay, you're the goalie and here's the rules. Probably just guys kicking around a soccer ball. But still, the point is that they still recognize each other as equals. They still see the soldier from across the way as someone who's kind of like me, who has similar values to me. The brutalization of war for one night, if one night only, takes a step back. We remember our common humanity. For the soldiers at the front lines that night, It must have been a magical evening. It must have been almost like a dream, you know, like a pinch mirror. Am I I awake or am I dreaming? Now, for the generals, this was a nightmare. You do not want your soldiers thinking of the enemy as a human being. You do not want them to think of the enemy as a a person. If I can uh, borrow a line from Clint Eastwood from the movie Unforgiven, he says, it's a hell of a thing killing a man. You take everything he's got and everything he's going to have. And so when you are forced to do that as part of combat, you don't want to be thinking about that guy's wife or his kids or his girlfriend or his mother. You don't want to think about that guy as a blacksmith who's just like you or a farmer just like you or a Catholic just like you. And so from this point onward, Every Christmas Eve, especially when you have units that are close to each other, they will launch sporadic artillery barrages to make sure those troops stay in their trenches and they do not fraternize with each other. Another tactic that you could take is to redeploy that unit right before Christmas, 
right? In order to have these kind of unwritten rules, you need the same soldiers to be in the same places so that they can develop the same understanding and begin to trust each other. So if you move more troops around, it's harder to, uh, to pull that off. Okay, so let's talk about attempts to break the stalemate 1915 to 1917. Again, this is this idea of we're going to have this decisive battle on the Western Front. We're going to do it through a breakthrough. We're just going to punch the enemy hard enough to, to break through. But before we get there, again, just take a moment to think about this Christmas truce and think about it as being the last moment when there was really a chance for European civilization of the 19th century to survive. It was the last chance, and it was one that was completely wasted. Okay, as we know, of course, the war continues long after this magical night, in part because the technologies involved in defending far outweighed the capabilities for those that were attacking. Where even if one was successful, even if you do get into that trench and you do take it, we don't have a mechanized army yet. We don't have, I mean, cars have been invented. There are some trucks. But if you think about someone like um, Ernest Hemingway, Hemingway serves in Italy as an ambulance driver, right? So they have trucks. They are driving the wounded back and forth, but it's not a massive army. You don't have the roads that those trucks can go over. You don't have the gasoline needed to exploit a breakthrough. A lot of your artillery, for example, is still drawn by horses during World War I. So basically, by the start of 1915, there is a broad realization that the war was supposed to be quick and glorious, but it has turned into a bloody stalemate. So how do we get out of this mess? What would you have done? What would you have counseled either the Entente Command or the German Command? Right? How could you rescue your country from this difficult situation, from this quagmire? Right? Living in the United States today... We have some idea of what a quagmire looks like, right? We fought wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Vietnam, and they just seem to go on and on and on. So how do you get out of a quagmire? The most obvious answer in 1915 is the idea of achieving breakthrough, as I mentioned. Simply put, punch a hole in the defenses and force the enemy to retreat, or else he will be cut off and forced to surrender. And as I just mentioned, this was a popular but flawed idea, because again, logistically, it's not possible to exploit a gap even if you are able to open one. But this fact is not as obvious to the generals involved in planning the war. In the West, between 1915 and 1917, we will see a number of major offensives involving millions of men that are reflections of a flawed strategic understanding of the war. There are a number of examples of this that we could talk about. But the biggest and most important takes place in 1916. And the first of these is the Battle of Verdun, which is a German offensive that lasted from February until December of that year. Now think about that. That's a 10-month-long battle. That's a hell of a battle. You know, we're talking about Napoleonic Wars, talking about Franco-Prussian Wars. You know, battles take a couple days. Battles take a weekend. By the time you get to World War I, you're talking about a battle that almost lasts an entire year. Okay, why Verdun? Basically, by the start of 1916, the German commander Erich von Falkenhayn had come to the realization that there would never be a decisive battle on the Western Front. He had come to give up on the idea that there was going to be a sedan or a Waterloo, or just, you know, you fight one battle and then the war is over and you know who won, you know who lost. And so rather than trying to achieve that decisive battle, 
he kind of comes up with this clever strategy. He decides, I'm going to try to bleed the French white. I'm going to try to force the French into attacking us because the defender has such material advantages that basically I'm going to kill so many Frenchmen that they're going to stop wanting to fight. Now, of course, you have to figure out how to get the French to attack you. And the French aren't just going to charge headlong into your lines. And so what he comes up with is this idea of what's a trap. He's going to attack the French city of Verdun, hopefully uh, take or at least surround Verdun, and force the French to try to defend the city. Now, Verdun is not just some other random town. It has a lot of historical significance. Uh, It was uh, the place where in the early medieval period, Charlemagne's empire was divided. Charlemagne was dead by this point, but they divide uh, the empire among his descendants. And so one of these sort of sections of the empire kind of becomes France. So it has a lot of historical significance. The French don't want to give it up. Now, Verdun in the fighting is also surrounded on three sides by German positions. So it's really hard to get into the city. All of the reserves coming through, all of the soldiers coming through, they're going to be at the mercy of German artillery. So Falkenhayn's main idea is to advance on the city, use artillery to blast the French units that are coming to support it. And so on February 21st, 1916, the Germans launch a massive attack against the city. At first, the German plan seemed to work, and German forces captured several key forts around the town. They relentlessly shell French positions. They drop over 20 million shells on the area between just February and June. 20 million shells. Try to to imagine for a second, try to picture the size of a town and its its surrounding environs. 20 million shells shells. Incidentally, if you ever get the chance to go to Verdun, you go to see where the battlefield was, the landscape is all full of these little hills and little kind of pockmarks in the hills that were not made by some great media shower or uh, asteroid strike. These are made by all of those shells. In fact, in certain parts of France, you can't use a lawnmower because there's still ordnance that's buried underground and you don't want to risk striking a bomb with the you know, metal blade of a lawnmower. So you use sheep. So Verdun is, is almost the site of like a holocaust almost, with all of the artillery shells that are dropped on it, all of the heavy fighting. The French actually you know, kind of carry out their end of the bargain, right? Falkenine was correct. The French do not want to give up Verdun. It becomes a symbol of French independence. And so they hold that ground tenaciously, making a Herculean effort to save it. Now, a great example of this is that there is actually only one road that is open during this point that leads into Verdun, which is about 50 miles long. And it's known today as the Voie Sacrée, or the sacred path, or the sacred uh, sort of uh, route. And the French turn it into a constant highway of supplies. They actually assemble a team of 3,500 trucks, which, remember, this is 1916. 3,500 trucks is a big, big deal. Those 3,500 trucks will move 2,000 pounds of supplies each day up around this little road. When a truck breaks down, they don't just pull over to the side and say, okay, let's fix it. They basically just push it over to the side of the mountain because you don't have time to interrupt the supply chain. That's how desperate the situation is. Unfortunately for the Germans, by mid-July, 
they essentially give up on the idea of taking the town, right? They achieve a lot of objectives early on in the fighting, but they don't achieve all of the objectives. And in fact, the longer and longer that the fighting goes on, the less and less successful they become. They end up losing large numbers of casualties. And so by mid-July, they switch over to a defensive posture, and now it will be the French turn to attack and to use the artillery, which they will beat back the Germans increasingly further and further until November when they retake most of the lost territory. In the end, the cost of Verdun was staggering. The French lose about 400,000 soldiers, the Germans over 300,000. We're talking about casualties here, not, not deaths. Deaths are included in that figure, uh, but, but three and 400,000 casualties. Now, while the Germans are planning out Verdun and expecting it to be the big battle that wins the war, the British, with some French assistance, planned their own major effort, which would become known as the Battle of the Somme, which lies in the northern part of France. The basic idea behind the offensive was pretty much just that. It was very basic. We're going to have a large artillery bombardment that's going to last for over one week, and it's going to drop over one million shells on German positions. It's going to blast a large hole in their defenses. We're going to, you know, what do you do about barbed wire on the battlefield? Well, you just, you know, hit it with artillery, and then it, it'll go away because you blew it up. What are you going to do about enemy machine gun posts? What are you going to do about enemy trenches? Well, we're just going to blow them up with artillery. Once those are gone, the infantry can just charge through. On July 1st, 1916, 100,000 British and French soldiers charge at the German positions following this long, heavy bombardment. Now, while there are some initial successes, the British commander Douglas Haig's plan does not work. Barbed wire lines that were supposed to be destroyed are still intact. German fortifications sometimes reached a depth of 30 feet. So, okay, the bombardment's happening. What happens? Well, the Germans run deep underground, they stay in their bunkers, and when the shelling is over, they come back out, and whoops, these troops that were supposed to just be able to march freely uh, into the fighting, sorry, you can't actually do that. Many of the newly recruited British citizen soldiers, uh, many of the volunteers, remember, the British did not have a reserve system. So the army that is fighting at the Somme is in many ways a, a volunteer army a citizen-soldier army, a group of people that hadn't seen combat before, but who wanted to, to do their all to protect the British Empire. And so as they charge forward in that fateful summer, they are cut down by machine gun fire. They are blown up by artillery that was behind the lines. And 12 of the 17 divisions that the British throw forward on the first day never reach German territory. Casualty rates reach 60% among most units on the first day of the war. 60%. I mean, even civil war battles in the United States, even civil war battles don't see casualty rates like that. In the end, the Entente powers would advance the front line a grand total of seven miles. Seven miles. That's all they took. All it cost them was 600,000 casualties. 600,000 men who were either dead, who lost limbs, who were shattered, shell-shocked, 
horrified by combat, broken, to gain seven miles of territory. You know, when we ask this question of, was the war worth it? Were people willing to make the sacrifices? Did it feel like something that was worth it? If you ask most Americans today, was fighting World War II worth it? Was defeating Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, was that worth it? They would say, yeah, yeah, it was. Was the Civil War worth it? Yeah, it would have been nice to have avoided that. It was definitely a catastrophe for the nation, but in the end, that sacrifice was worth it, right? To free the slaves, to bring the country back together through the experience of war, to keep the country together. Do British citizens in the wake of the Somme, do French citizens in the wake of Verdun, or German citizens in the wake of Verdun, or Russian citizens in the wake of Messerian Lakes and Tannenberg and other battles? Is it worth hundreds of thousands of casualties to move the front line seven miles? Increasingly, and especially by the year 1917 and afterwards, the answer becomes no. Now, I do want to pivot back very briefly here to the East, because as I said, we often forget about the East. We often leave the uh, East out of the story. In the East, things are not really much better. In the early spring, a large Russian offensive against the Germans fail. And in June, a larger attack led by General Alexei Brusilov was actually more successful. There's not a lot of good stories of the Russian army from World War I. Uh, it's basically a catastrophe pretty much any time they fight. But Brusilov is one of the bright lights from the war. One of the things that Brusilov realizes is this idea that we're going to mass our troops together, and we're going to march across the battlefield all you know, kind of tightly together, that's a horrible idea in an age of artillery. That artillery is going to chew up those forces. So if you're going to attack an entrenched line, it's much better to do that on a wider attack, on a wider scale, so that you prevent enemy forces from plugging holes that have opened. He also tries to get his troops as close as possible to the enemy line before you start. Right? This might seem pretty obvious, but uh, it was kind of lost on many of the World War I generals. The more open ground you have to run over, the worse it's going to be. Finally, most importantly, Brusilov realizes the German forces are pretty effective. The Austro-Hungarian forces, not nearly as much. And so if we're going to launch an offensive, we're going to do it against those weaker Austrian or Austro-Hungarian soldiers. And so basically this Brusilov offensive creates one of the first major breakthrough opportunities since 1914. However, the Russian army does not have the logistical ability to exploit the attack. They also, they're not very coordinated. As you saw with the uh, example of uh, von Rennenkampf and Samsonov, the, the generals don't really work that well together. And so as a result, they do advance the front line 50 miles, which is an incredible achievement compared to what's going on in the Somme. But it still costs the Russians 500,000 casualties. Still, a successful offensive costs 500,000 casualties, and in the end, it doesn't really change the mathematics of the war. Now, there are other battles and offensives that we could mention, and, and maybe one day I'll do more of a, a specific podcast episode on the battles of World War I, and maybe we can talk in more detail about some of them. Uh, maybe I could do even a travel uh, episode so that you can go and tour some of these battlefields um, if you just want to look at home. There's one called the Nivelle Offensive from 1917 that's fairly important. It is, again, one of these complete disasters that cost the Entente 
300,000 casualties combined, and it will actually lead the French army to mutiny. The French army in 1917, in the wake of the Nivelle Offensive, basically says, we are not going to attack anymore. We're not going to give the territory to the Germans. We're not going to surrender. We're not ready to surrender. We've made too many sacrifices. But we are no longer going over the top because it's suicidal. So again, let's go back to that question that I asked you a second ago. How do you break the stalemate? We said, okay, the direct sort of way, we just attack the enemy lines, get a breakthrough. It's definitely failed by 1916, 1917. That's not working. So what else can we do? Well... Those of you that are chess players, you probably say, huh, I would go for geo strategy. I would think about how can I change the geographies, the logistics, how can I change the basic landscape of the war so that I can put pressure on my adversary and force them to some sort of terms. So both sides are going to relentlessly pursue finding other allies to try to expand the war, to try to bring new combatants into the war. And this is what basically turns it into a genuinely world war as opposed to just a European war. Already as early as October 1914, the Germans are working on their close allies in the Ottoman Empire to declare war on Russia, and the Ottomans are already excited about that idea. They fought at the end of the 19th century several wars that they've lost to the Russians. Russians have gradually been taking more and more territory. The Ottomans have also lost territory to Serbia, uh, to a number of other uh, states in the Balkans. And so they want to get involved to recover some of their lost territories. In May 1915, the Entente powers convince Italy to betray its erstwhile allies in Germany and Austria-Hungary. They basically say, look, Italians, what is it that you really want? Do you you really want the status quo? Or are you still trying to unite Italy? Do you still want lands that had partially been inhabited by Italians along the Adriatic coast? And so Italy signs this secret treaty uh, called the uh, Treaty of London. And they say, okay, we're going to get territory from Austria. We declare war on Austria. Now, in reality, the Italian army actually does terribly. Um, as I said, the Austro-Hungarians don't have a lot of bright spots. They're not very effective. They tend to be the target and the object uh, more of, uh, of attacks rather than the ones leading it. But the Italian army is kind of basically stymied by the Austrians, and eventually they lose a very embarrassing battle in 1917 at the Battle of Caporetto. Um, Again, this is one of the few Austro-Hungarian achievements during the war. They end up occupying the uh, the eastern part of uh, of the Veneto. Another country that joins in 1915 is Bulgaria. They join the Central Powers because they want to claim what is uh, today part of Macedonia. Serbia, as we mentioned, had been fighting this kind of very valiant struggle against the Austro-Hungarians had fought off three invasions, really was doing amazing. Uh, And then the Bulgarians in 1915 declare war on them. And so it's almost like, you know, you're you're just holding back the the attacker with everything you've got. And then someone comes through the back door and punches you in the back of the head. And so basically Serbia as a state begins to collapse in October 1915. The Serbian army would flee across the mountains into Albania, eventually reaching the Greek isle of Corfu. Uh, This retreat is horrific. This retreat is full of civilians. It's tens of thousands of soldiers. They're suffering. There's dying. They don't really have the supplies. And so if you go to Serbia today, there's still an awful lot of talk about World War I and about the suffering and sacrifice of the Serbian army during this retreat. 
Another Balkan state that joins the fighting is Romania. Uh, in 1916, they joined the Entente cause with the hope of occupying Transylvania. Transylvania was part of Hungary at the time. Uh, there are a lot of ethnic Hungarians that live there. And there's been a lot of tension over the 20th century between Romania and Hungary about who gets to control Transylvania. So the idea of, you know, the Russians seem to be doing well with the Brusilov affair. Let's jump in. Let's get the territory that we want by joining the Entente side. Yeah, let's do it. However, when Russia collapses in 1917, there isn't a whole lot left to help defend Romania. They're surrounded by enemy forces. And at the end of the year, they actually sue for peace. Finally, of course, you have the biggest sort of entry into the war, which is the United States in April 1917. Now, ostensibly, this was a response to unrestricted uh, submarine warfare by the Germans, but we'll talk a little bit more about the American case in just a few moments. Now, these efforts to expand the war tended to have little effect, at least until 1918. Most countries were unable to achieve their strategic objectives and often suffered massive losses of life. A great example of this would be the Battle of Gallipoli in the spring of 1915. Gallipoli is a peninsula on the southern side of the Dardanelles Straits. So basically where Turkey is, uh, basically you have that, that kind of land bridge. There's the Sea of Marmara in the middle. The Dardanelles is the southernmost point of that crossing. Now the Entente powers hope to seize it, knock the Ottomans out of the war, and basically protect the British relationship with India. Uh, India was the economic engine of the British Empire, and so if they were cut off, the question would be, what would the British be able to do? So in April, the Entente powers conduct a series of landings. They have mixed results, uh, and the troops that do this are, importantly, mostly from New Zealand and Australia. And so they're known as the Anzac forces. Now, Australia and New Zealand, before this happens, they're basically known as backwaters. They're basically, you know, Australia is where we send the criminals to. Uh, Australia is kind of an afterthought. And it's in these moments, in these moments of fighting and sacrifice, that we really start to see the emergence of the nationalism of Australia, of nationalism in New Zealand. We start to see their emergence as kind of distinct, powerful, ready to almost be independent entities. As these Anzac troops are coming ashore in the spring of 1915, at first, in many cases, they do well. Uh, some of these places they land and the guys are like on the beach and they actually set up, you know, it's tea time, you know, so we must have tea. And then they set up their little tea kettles and they're having tea time and biscuits on the beach and uh, others are involved in very heavy fighting. Uh, of course, when you have these landings, people wind up in the wrong places. Things kind of go to hell. So at first, the Ottoman troops are faltering, but they are rallied by a 34-year-old division commander named Mustafa Kemal. Kemal not only rallies the troops, but eventually is recognized by the Ottomans as a real leader, as a kind of almost a George Washington. Uh, and so by early May, Kemal's troops had halted any of the Anzac progress. Yet the troops are left there to fight. Even though the, the, the mission has kind of failed, they're not going to be able to knock Turkey out of the war. They're not going to be able to seize the Dardanelles Straits. They just get left there to fight and die for another six months. And the, the British high command is not unaware of the futility of the situation. But there is a feeling that those soldiers, well, you know, the British have lost so many, so the Australians might as well lose so many as well. 
There's a feeling that the generals are not looking out for the well-being of their soldiers. And so Gallipoli becomes known as this tragedy that is both sort of, it's ennobling in the sense that it brings out the best in the Anzac spirit, but it also comes at a tremendous cost. You know, again, the losses are staggering. About 300,000 casualties for the Entente, 250,000 for the Turks. And what has been gained by all this? What have we achieved? Not a whole heck of a lot. But the cost has been enormous. Okay, so far we've tried breakthrough. That didn't work. We tried geostrategery. That didn't work. So the last major tactic that many of you might have thought of, certainly the most important from a modern warfare standpoint, would be the idea of using technology. Use better tech to overcome obstacles presented by the enemy. And so World War I witnesses a tremendous push in this area, led most prominently by the Nobel Prize-winning German chemist Fritz Haber. Now, Haber is a brilliant chemist, but he's also an enthusiastic supporter of the war, which is kind of ironic if you think about it. Because the Nobel Prize, it's invented by Alfred Nobel. He's the guy that that basically invents dynamite uh, and explosives. And he sees the kind of uh, effect that this has, the massive amount of life that's destroyed because of it. He feels guilty. And so he sets up the Nobel Prize for various things, like the Nobel Peace Prize, to try to reward and encourage people to to basically be better. Now, Haber doesn't win the, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. He wins the Chemistry Prize. But he's, he's, again, an award-winning chemist. Uh, he's a brilliant guy. He's very cosmopolitan. But nevertheless, he becomes an enthusiastic supporter of the war. And so soon after it begins, he starts saying to himself, how can we use chemistry to help win the war? And so working together with the chemical giant I.G. Farben, who we're going to talk a lot more about when we get into World War II and the Holocaust, Haber manages to produce a form of chlorine gas from dye runoff that when you inhale it, produces hydrochloric acid in the lungs. And so basically, if you inhale hydrochloric acid, your lungs start generating massive amounts of fluid. Of course, if you have a bunch of fluid in the lungs, you're going to drown. The first chemical weapons that are going to be used on the Western Front, they basically cause drowning. Let me put a quick asterisk on what I just said. I just said the first chemical weapons, I should say the first deadly chemical weapons, uh, the Germans and the French, uh, both, I believe, use basically a version of tear gas early on to see if that can make any difference, and it it doesn't. So they turn to more lethal uh, things. On the afternoon of April 22nd, 1915, special chemical weapons units fire 160 tons of gas into the defenses of Ypres, who were manned by French troops from Martinique and Algeria. Casualties among the defenders were high, and many of the defenders flee in terror. Now, some soldiers, just to get a sense of desperation and, and, you know, again, what life is like in the trench, some soldiers are are really smart, uh, very clever. They basically pull out their handkerchief when the gas comes in, they pee on it so it's wet, and then they breathe through that. And that actually protects them from this, uh, this chlorine gas. So the initial effect for Germany is positive. It opens a large hole. It creates terror in the Entente defenses. However, the Germans don't have the capability of exploiting those gaps. Part of this is because they just never really believed that it would work. Part of it is because 
okay, we just used, you know, chemical weapons against this area. We put in poison gas. That's great. We killed all those enemy soldiers. But I don't want to go run into a trench full of poison gas myself. So it's not the most effective uh, weapon. Uh, another problem is that you can develop respirators that are uh, fairly effective. And then you also have the wind. So I can launch these chemical weapons at people, but if the wind starts blowing the wrong direction, not only does it take it away from my opponents, but it can actually blow it back onto me. And so chemical weapons, mustard gas, phosgene gas, which is a little bit more effective, a little bit more deadly, these things don't actually change the course of the war. Another thing we could throw out there is the idea of a flamethrower. Um, you know, if you are hiding in a small crack or in a trench, we have to, you know, try to get into that area. How can we do that, right? We can't just shoot through walls. One of the inventions that they come up with on the eve of World War I in both Britain and Germany, about simultaneously, is the idea of a flamethrower. Now, at close range, this is actually pretty effective. But the problem is that you have to get into close range and you're fighting on battlefields with artillery and machine guns, and it's hard to bring those flamethrowers up. Um, needless to say, too, you've got a giant thing of gas on your back. Uh, it's very easy to make that explode if I shoot you or if I hit you with a, uh, an artillery round from far away. So in practice, flamethrowers also tend to be used only from the trenches, which means that they're more actually of a defensive weapon than they are an offensive weapon. That's not helping. We don't need better defensive weapons. We need better offensive weapons. Of course, one of the great questions is, well, why don't we end up with this kind of trench warfare in World War II for the most part? And the answer is that we invent tanks. And tanks were invented during World War I. And the tank is highly effective because it's got those treads. It can roll over the, the trenches that are in the ground. It's more mobile. It's faster. It can get behind the enemy soldiers without uh, exposing our soldiers to withering machine gun fire. Barbed wire is not going to be able to stop a tank. And so basically, the British and French begin working on these prototypes in the fall of 1915. The idea being, you know, let's get behind the enemy lines. And from there, we can exploit this gap in the line that we can create. The first major usage of tanks occurs during that Battle of the Somme, in 1916. However, even though the idea of the tank is successful, and in the long run it will prove the decisive thing that makes trench warfare less effective, these early tanks are still problematic. To begin with, they are not produced en masse until the end of the war. If I have 16 tanks and 8 manage to get behind the enemy lines, that's great for those tanks, but 8 tanks are not going to be able to convince a whole army of 100,000 men that they need to retreat. We're also in the infancy of motors, and tanks are heavy. And so the idea that tank engines break down is actually uh, pretty common. They also had spent so much time thinking about, okay, what does the tank look like? What does the armor look like? What does the gun system look like? They haven't spent a whole lot of time yet thinking about ventilation systems. And so imagine being inside this tank, and there's not really windows, there's not really ventilation, what do you get inside the tank? Well, it gets super hot, and you also can get carbon monoxide. And so it's not uncommon from these tank crews, they're in the middle of the battle, and they just all pass out, either from carbon monoxide poisoning or from just the fact that it's so hot. Now, the last problem with these tanks is that they're also incredibly slow. 
As I mentioned, this is the infancy of the motor engine. And so they race along at about five miles an hour, which is basically a normal adult's walking pace. So if you have a tank, even though I can't shoot it with machine guns or flamethrowers, I can hit it with artillery. And if you're only moving across the battlefield at five miles an hour, well, eventually I can target your tank and I can disable it. So technologically speaking, the various combatants in World War I never really overcome the defensive advantages of the trench. Now, there are two other inventions that we should mention just very briefly that do have a huge impact on the war, even if they don't lead to breakthroughs and and dramatic, you know, kind of transformations into the positions of the armies. But they are both fantastic symbols of modernity. And they really create new heroes. They, they, They create new understandings of what men and what human beings are capable of. And the first of these, of course, is the airplane. Now, as any good North Carolinian will know, or if you've driven through North Carolina, you looked at the license plate, the first airplane flight took place on December 17, 1903 at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Now, this was not the first flight ever. Balloons had been around since the end of the 18th century, but it was the first flight of something that was A, controlled, and B, heavier than air. So, yeah, balloons are nice. Balloons are great. We float them up. We can see the enemy positions sometimes. Uh, That's great, but you can't really drive a balloon anywhere. Right? If the wind is blowing the wrong way, you'll lose your balloon. You'll fly over enemy lines and you'll be captured. So the idea of the airplane is it doesn't kind of create the first flight, but it creates a new way of flying that is incredibly powerful and incredibly important. Now, by 1914, airplanes were capable of flying at higher altitudes with a seat for the pilot and occasionally a second passenger. At this early stage, however, they were primarily used for reconnaissance and artillery targeting. And even here, there are some problems, because you don't really have a modern radio. So how are we going to communicate from the ground to the pilot and from the pilot to the ground? This really sounds like something a couple teenagers came up with, uh, but the pilots actually will like write down the things that they see on a message, and they'll fly over their own lines and drop it on their own lines so that they can get information to HQ before they land. In order to get information themselves, they actually make these big cloths and they lay them out on the ground and then, the, you know, you could see it from the air. So they figure, oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's where I'm supposed to go. At the early stages of the war, there's not really a lot of uh, aerial combat. There's not really a lot of bombing. And a big reason for this is that to have an effective range and accuracy from a moving plane, you, you have to use a machine gun. It's, you know, the idea that I'm flying along and I'm going to take my little pistol out and I'm going to aim it and try to hit something while I'm moving and it's moving and the wind is strong. It's just not going to happen. But how do you fire a machine gun without hitting the propeller? Right? I can't mount it on the wings because the wings aren't strong enough yet to deal with that type of weight. So I've got to put it on the fuselage of the airplane, but that means I'm shooting through my propellers and I clearly don't want to shoot my propellers or my tail. And so how am I going to do this? In 1915, the Germans figure out the answer, and they create this thing called a Fokker, uh, which is like a brand of fighter. It's a company that makes fighter planes. But what they figure out how to do is to synchronize the firing of the bullets and the propellers. So if the propellers are in a certain position, the bullets won't fire until the propeller has cleared that position, and then there's a window it will shoot in that gap. Now, of course, if we're talking about World War I and we're talking about Germany and aviation, we have to mention the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen. 
Von Richthofen came from a prominent aristocratic family and was initially a member of the cavalry. However, cavalry are pretty useless in trench warfare because there's nowhere for the horses to go. And so he's basically bored. At one point, they're going to reassign him to a supply unit. And he's kind of like, you know, that's not what I do. I'm not here to go you know, try to get the groceries for, uh, for the uh, cooks to cook things. That's not a very noble thing to do. So he joins a reconnaissance unit, not as the pilot, but as the observer, because as a cavalryman, he's used to kind of, you know, making observations, looking in the distance. He says, okay, we'll put you up in an airplane. He does this for a couple months. He says, wow, flying is really cool. I love it. Uh, and he starts formal flight training in October of 1915. In 1916, he's selected to be part of one of the first dedicated fighter units, and he scores his first confirmed kill in September 1916. Now, what made von Richthofen so effective wasn't really his flying skills. Uh, he's not Maverick from Top Gun. He's not, you know, pulling off these amazing stunts. He's, he's not, again, he's, he becomes an ace, but in an ace in, in the way that you would expect a German to, right? It's not the, the flamboyance. It's the cold, calm, tactical approach, right? Had he been cast in Top Gun, he is Iceman. He is just cooler than the other side of the pillow, to, uh, to use a Stuart Scott line from Sports Center. Von Richthofen normally engages from above. He tries to get the sun behind him so that, you know, you're flying into the sun and you can't really see. He's coming down from above. It's much harder to shoot up than it is down. And he also usually has friendly pilots that cover his wings. So again, the Iceman reference from Top Gun makes a lot of sense. The Maverick one is like completely the opposite of Von Richthofen. By January 1917, he had become somewhat of a celebrity. So note there that he's only really started flying effectively in September of 1916, and in four months, he's already becoming a celebrity in the German press. And he himself contributes to this. He publishes his own autobiography in 1917. But the media needs heroes. And if you're not having individual efforts, individual episodes, because so much of the fighting is, is by artillery, so much of the fighting is distant, and mechanical, then the flyer, the pilot, the ace, becomes the new knight, becomes the new heroic figure for a new modern mechanical age. Von Richthofen will eventually score 80 combat victories until he is shot down on April 21st, 1918, while flying over France. Uh, he is killed during that mission, uh, and his body is initially buried in France, although later on they, they take it back to Germany. Now, in World War II, the, the flying, the scouting, you know, the observations, the dogfighting, that's important and interesting. But in World War II, it's the bombing that really creates a strategic difference in the war effort. But these early planes, especially in the first half of World War I, are not capable of large-scale bombing, at least not until the end of the war. Thus, the initial heavy bomber was actually a blimp, perfected in Germany by the Zeppelin Company. Invented at the close of the 19th century by the German Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, the large hydrogen-filled blimps began the world's first commercial air service in 1910. When World War I began, the German army and navy took control of these Zeppelins, which were smaller than the famous Hindenburg types, and began using them for observation. In January 1915, looking for a strategic advantage, they begin what they called a strategic bombing campaign using the airships against the city of London. While the raids generated a lot of panic, 
the difficulty of maneuvering the airships made their military value negligible. By 1917, specialist bomber planes would take over this campaign, although they had little effect. So the Zeppelin raids of of the First World War, they terrorize the British, they are memorialized by the British, but in the end, they're not really that effective. They don't really change the outcome of the war. Finally, perhaps the most effective invention to mention in conjunction with World War I is the invention of the U-boat. This is a German submarine that would terrorize Entente shipping in the Atlantic during World War I, and of course, again, the Allied shipping during World War II. Now, the concept of the submarine, as I mentioned, wasn't new. They had one back during the Civil War. Uh, Didn't really accomplish a whole lot, but they had one. They thought of it. But the first effective submarines are only built in 1903. Over the next decade, the German Navy slowly expanded their numbers to reach a total of 48. When World War I begins, German subs begin attacking Entente ships in the areas off the coast of Britain. In 1915, they changed the rules of engagement to allow them to attack commercial vessels without warning. Basically, what happens at the beginning of World War I is U-boats will surface, they will announce their presence, they will say, okay, you know, you must surrender your ship, uh, you know, abandon your ship, and then I'm going to sink it. But then what the British begin to do is they have armed ships that look like merchantmen. So when the U-boat surfaces, ah, now we can attack it. Uh, And so then they say, okay, we're not going to be able to do this anymore. In 1915, as the situation gets worse, the British announce a blockade of Germany. And so the Germans announce any ships in British waters are fair game. We're not going to bother to surface. We're not going to bother to distinguish between a civilian vessel and a military vessel. So in 1915, they famously sink a large liner called the RMS Lusitania. Uh, The ship is hit just off the Irish coast, which is at that time part of the British Empire. Uh, And the initial torpedo hit was followed by a secondary explosion that indicates that there were likely munitions uh, aboard. At the time, the Germans kind of say, look, there's a whole bunch of military munitions. It's a military target. The Allies say, no, this was uh, basically a... um, a civilian vessel that shows German barbarism. And later on, in, in like recently, they've come in to admit that, yeah, actually there were uh, military munitions on it. But the Lusitania sinks in less than 20 minutes and kills over a thousand people, almost all of whom were civilians. So it becomes, for many Americans, a symbol of the, the German guilt for the war, of the German barbarism. Right now, we, you know, in the beginning, we don't care. There's a lot of ethnic Germans living here in the United States. Yeah, we'll see what happens. But that becomes a symbol of German injustice. And so it alone does not lead to war, but it kind of begins to put the scales towards joining on the Entente side. In 1916, the German government briefly disavows unrestricted submarine warfare. They want to keep the United States out of the war, but they will return to it fatefully in the fall due to the ineffectiveness of U-boat warfare. So, in the end, the U-boats are very effective. They do choke off British shipping. They cause hardships on the British mainland. But it comes at the cost of bringing the United States into the war. And we'll see in just a second why that is so important. In the end, then, none of these strategies really proved effective. The grand battle plans of 1916 and 1917 failed to achieve the decisive breakthrough. The widening of the war causes much destruction, but it does little to alter the balance of forces until 1918. And the various technologies, 
often best exploited or invented by the Germans, fail to change the course of the war. In the end, World War I becomes a war of attrition, a battle to see which state will be exhausted first. Now, the winner of that contest to exhaustion becomes Russia. We'll discuss this in more detail when we talk about the Russian Revolution, but basically by early 1917, Russian units begin to lose faith in the war. The mutiny of the Petrograd, or St. Petersburg as it's known today, during the war it was changed to Petrograd because St. Petersburg sounded too German. Basically, this mutiny leads to the abdication of the Tsar Nicholas II. His government is replaced by a nominally democratic one, but their continuation of the war leads to their downfall in October 1917. Led by Vladimir Lenin, the new Bolshevik government began to pull Russia out of the war. As we mentioned, the French too had begun to experience serious problems during the Nivelle Offensive in the spring of 1917. Order had only been restored when French commanders promised to discontinue offensive warfare. Finally, as we saw, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had experienced serious problems going back to 1916. Italy's soldiers were even worse off, especially after the defeat at Caporetto in 1917. So Europe's armies, by the end of 1917, are nearing total exhaustion. And the Germans could begin to envision some type of victory. However, the American entry into the war creates a bigger problem, a longer-term problem, for the Central Powers. Now, the United States only had a small peacetime army, and it's not known as being particularly effective. The idea that the American army, American generals, are going to show up in 1917, even into 1918, it doesn't impress anyone. They don't think that the Americans are going to be particularly good at fighting. Yes, the United States beat Spain in the war in 1898, but you know, it was Spain declining power. Uh, they were fighting mostly in the Northern Hemisphere. Not too much to worry about in 1917. But the United States also has millions of potential soldiers who have not been exhausted by years and years of fighting. The United States has a big population a big amount of soldiers that they can throw into these types of fights. And so the German command is thus presented with a crucial window of time. There's a period in the spring of 1918 where German forces won't be needed in the east to fight the Russians, and they can be used on the Western Front before the arrival of a majority of the American forces. After 1918, this is no longer going to be the case. And so the Germans basically decide... We have this one moment in the spring of 1918. Let's throw everything into the fight. Let's take the ultimate gamble. If we can break the French lines, maybe we can force the French to surrender and we can bring the war to a successful conclusion. And so in March 1918, the Germans began one final mass offensive designed to break through the Western Front, pushing between the British and French armies in an effort to separate them. To make the assault even more effective, the Germans also deployed new tactics. Instead of the long, you know, million artillery shell barrage that basically says to the enemy, we're attacking here, we're attacking this narrow spot, go ahead and, and withdraw, keep your reserves behind, evacuate some trenches. Instead, the Germans figure out, short barrage, couple hours, rush your troops to the front, don't wait for them to build up reserves. Second, don't attack the strongest points in the enemy line. Instead, bypass them, go around them, 
use this new thing that we've developed called a stormtrooper, who's like an elite soldier, fast-moving, well-armed, go around the enemy's strong points, and then cut off the defenders and force them to surrender. Now, initially, these tactics are very successful. The German army makes considerable progress. They move a whopping 20 miles in the spring of 1918. Yet, like many previous offensives, this one too begins to break down as the troops begin to outplace their supply lines. After consolidation, the Germans actually make four additional pushes, right? We have this moment. We have the kind of the, the, the force that we can begin to attack. We have the advantage. But before the tide begins to turn in the summer, helped in part by an American victory at the Battle of Belleau Wood in early June, which happens to be the first American victory in Europe and is kind of treated as a sort of baptism of the uh, Marine Corps, they are not able to take enough territory in able to win the war. By the start of July, the German army no longer has the ability to conduct offensive operations. They don't have the munitions, they don't have the soldiers, they don't have the logistical capabilities to continue the advance. By the end of August, most of the territory gained in 1918 has been lost, and by the end of September, Germany's allies had begun to surrender or were negotiating surrenders. Bulgaria surrenders at the end of September. A couple weeks later, Austria-Hungary does, which at the same time, basically, Austria-Hungary is disintegrating. New states are proclaimed in Poland, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia in October. Hungary declares itself independent on November 1st. And as the entire range of central powers, as their governments and states are falling apart, on November 9th, 1918, the German Kaiser Wilhelm II also abdicates. Two days later, at 5.45 a.m., German representatives signed an official armistice in a railway car near the town of Compiègne. After five long and hard years, the war was finally over. What to make of all this? What to make of the tremendous costs? When the armies of Europe first took to the field in August of 1914, you had any idea of the enormous costs each would bear as a result. The most obvious way to measure this cost, of course, is in terms of human life, which was extraordinary for the era. Estimates, of course, vary, but in general, historians agree that the war costs about 15 to 20 million people their lives. By contrast, the much longer Napoleonic Wars witnessed only about 4 to 7.5 million people dead. So four to five times the amount of people killed in a much shorter war. About 10 million of these dead from World War I were soldiers, many of whom were actually killed in battle as opposed to dying from disease. And this is actually kind of interesting. Prior to this, the number one cause of death in most armies during wartime is not fighting. I mean, people do die. A lot of people get wounded, bayonet charges and things like that, you know, stabbings. But it's disease that is the real killer because you don't have modern medical systems. You don't have, until the middle of the 19th century, awareness of, of like infections, uh, things like that. And so, you know, cholera outbreaks, these are the real deadly killers during warfare. It's only in World War I that soldiers are actually killed more in battle than they are from disease. Now, obviously, the losses were most profound among the major combatants. Russia lost about 2 million men 
or about 1.5% of its pre-war population. Germany loses about 2 million men, or about 3% of its pre-war population. For France, the figure was about 1.4 million, 3.5%. And for the UK, it was about 900,000, which is about 2%, though this figure does not include the 1 million soldiers from places like India, uh, the Anzac forces, Canada, etc., who died for the king and the crown and the empire. Serbia loses about 10% of its pre-war population. Now, obviously, these figures are pretty horrific, but they don't do justice to the effect of these lives that were lost. Consider that you were talking primarily about young men here, young men who, in theory, were at least supposed to be the most dynamic elements of European society, young men who were supposed to get married, to start families, to run businesses. What happens when such a large percentage of these men are dead? What happens to young women in a society where you are expected to marry or where you are considered a failure if you don't? But now there are four women competing for every available man. What happens to the children of these dead men, especially the boys? How are they supposed to develop a clear sense of their own masculinities, to understand what it was to be a man in their societies? And if you think about it, for most young boys right now, who are their number one role models? It's not LeBron James or Charles Barkley or some politician. It's their dad. And beyond that, it's their their grandparents maybe, but it's their dad is the number one for for not every uh, man out there, but for most men. Most young boys look up to their fathers and want to be like their fathers. What do you do in a society where hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children, don't have male role models? Mass death creates a series of psychological crises that do not end with the end of the war, but in many ways actually only begin in earnest once the war is over. Of course, so far we're talking about the dead, but what about the wounded? We're talking here about some 20 to 25 million people whose bodies are broken at some point during the war. Now, obviously, some of these men can make full recoveries, but there are many who do not. You know, when we watch a war movie and uh, somebody gets shot or there's artillery, you know, the guy falls over and goes, ah, I'm hit, and you know, they fall over and they die. That's not really what happens. Um, even thinking about soldiers that are wounded, right? They go to the tent and there's the nurse smiling at them and the doctor comes over and does a little thing and saves their lives and usually they get fixed up pretty quickly, pretty easily. But in World War I, a large number of casualties come from artillery, from shrapnel, and from grenades. There are literally millions of men whose bodies are blown apart and not all of those men die. So even when your life can be saved, You might lose a limb, you might have facial disfiguration, your jaw might be blown off. And remember, there's no plastic surgery. I can't just go to a doctor and, you know, well, they put a prosthetic limb on you. So close your eyes for a second as you're driving and think for a moment of what it must have been like to be a person whose jaw has been completely blown away. More importantly, think about what it must have been like to be their wife their child, their mother. You see these war wounded on the streets of every major combatant in Europe, on the streets, at church, 
at your dinner table again and again, year after year. Broken, shattered, deformed, disfigured men. They remind you every day for years of the terrible costs of this war. Of course, not all damage to the human body is visible. One of the things we recognize today is the importance of mental health and the impact trauma can have on the human psyche. But this was not understood before World War I. When men refused to go over the top, when they shook so hard that they were essentially dysfunctional, it was assumed that they were cowards who had just lost their nerves. World War I was the war that would begin to change that. Because there are so many men that go through this condition, which becomes known as shell shock. Today we call it post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Now this realization begins as early as the first months of the war when officers began to identify soldiers who complained of amnesia, headaches, dizziness, tremors, and a sensitivity to noise after participating in large battles. In 1915, the British psychologist Charles Myers began to identify this condition, as I said, as shell shock. However, it was still poorly understood. Now, even beyond this notion of shell shock, you don't have to be suffering from PTSD to understand that there is a cost, obviously, there is a cost, frequently, of fighting in war. Imagine the effects of seeing death up close on such a large scale, of seeing friends and comrades killed in such large numbers and in such dehumanizing ways. We don't have to work hard to imagine this impact because artists and authors who lived through the war found powerful ways to convey this sense of loss to us. Take, for example, the work of the German writer Erich Maria Remarque, who was wounded in the trenches in 1917. In 1927, he penned one of the great works about the war in Im Westen nichts Neues, which was translated into English as All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, The German basically says, in the West, there's nothing new. They made it all quiet on the Western Front, which, of course, has become this iconic title. The book, and later on, it's made into a movie in 1930, charts the journey of a young soldier named Paul Boimer, who patriotically volunteers for service, only to have his illusions about the glory of war shattered. Now, there is a lot that happens in the film, and I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. But there is an incredibly powerful scene where the German soldier Paul finds himself alone in a shell hole with a French soldier. And it's in the middle of the battle. The French soldier just kind of jumps in. And before they know it, they're at each other's throats. In the ensuing fight, Paul slits the man's throat. But it actually takes him some time to die. Right? It's not just like, oh, I stabbed him and he stops breathing and he dies. People sometimes get hurt and it takes them time to die. Now, due to the artillery bombardment, Paul is basically stuck in there watching his adversary die, seeing his adversary's humanity up close and personal as he goes through the most intimate and most tragic moment in the man's life. He finds a picture of the dead Frenchman's wife, or again, maybe his girlfriend, his family, but he begins to realize the consequences of his actions. This and other events in the film weigh heavily on Paul, and they make a profound and powerful anti-war statement. I don't want to give away the ending of the film, but if you've seen it, basically Paul becomes broken. 
the loss, the trauma, the things he's seen, the friends that he's had to say goodbye to along the way, it breaks him. And you have millions and millions of these men who survive the war but return home broken, who have to find a place in society shattered of so many of its illusions. If I can borrow a quote for a moment from the American documentary filmmaker Ken Burns with reference to the Civil War. By 1919, the World War is over, and it is not over. The armies have ceased fighting, at least in the West. There's still a lot of fighting going on in the East, and we'll talk about that later. But the psychological and social damage inflicted on European societies remain. There were 40 million holes punched into the social fabric of Europe, and even more bodies and minds that would never escape the trauma that they had suffered. Moreover, tragedy did not end in 1918 when the fighting stopped. War raged on in Russia for another six years as the Bolsheviks sought to consolidate power. It raged in places like Poland and the Ukraine as new governments and states negotiated the boundaries of these resurrected or invented nation-states. The specter of communism haunted Europe, even as the Spanish flu swept over the continent, killing millions more. In Germany, you had the consequences of the Versailles Peace Treaty, and German reactions to it would lead to the Rhine crisis in the early 1920s, which basically takes us to hyperinflation. The costs of this war were, therefore, beyond anything that anyone could have possibly imagined in 1914. What had it all been for? Was it worth it? These are questions that dominated post-war European society, questions that we will further explore in our next episode on the experience of the war and the psychological impact that it has. Again, as I said, the material destruction of World War I blew away, no pun intended, anything that had existed before. But it is the psychological impact that really makes this one of the key foundational moments of modern European history. So to find out more about that, join us next time as we take history off the page.